So we are doing part two with Nita. If you've watched part one, it is a harrowing story. So disclaimer is going to come with this one. If stories of this nature disturb you, you may want to find something else to watch. And because of the police requirement on the channel, whenever we do an interview like this, I have to ask the guest if they waive the anonymity, which just means they're consenting to tell their story on my channel. And because of the nature of the story, the police are requiring us to ask that. Do you waive your anonymity? I consent, I do. <laughs> you consent, okay, thank you. All right, so in part one, we left off where there was a transaction. Um, Nita was a kid with some other kids. They'd pooled their resources together. They'd given the money to this guy they trusted to purchase something illegal. That guy had not returned with the product or the money. So then there was a price to pay. Materials were gathered to set a fire. And I'll hand it over to Nita from here. Involving offence. <laughs> um, thanks for having me on your channel again. Great to be here. Thanks for coming back. Pleasure. And Nita's channel link is in the description box below this video. If you want to go over and subscribe to her channel, watch her stuff. There's loads more on her channel and give her support. Thank you. So I was going to read a little bit from my book just because I get the details kind of mixed yeah, up in my it. head. Um, my book will be getting published again at some point, but for now it's just a manuscript. Um, as we approached the estate in the car, I stared blankly out the window as I played the scene over and over in my head, contemplating what could happen if I went through with setting his house on fire. Someone could die. He might not even be home and I'd be murdering an innocent family. But I didn't care. He had to pay for what he'd done. And as I consumed myself in anger, I realised that it, I was not only angry at Kay. I started remembering every bad thing that had ever happened to me. Every sexual assault, every rape from James and Drew, every lost fight with bullies and all my depression. Suddenly I felt the anger and pain that had been building up inside me for years and I knew I had to let it all out. I had to find release and it seemed like the fire would make all the pain go away. So I knew there was no backing out now. So I've got to Dee's house. Um, we met up and took a deep breath and went to Kay's house to set the fire. I had the petrol with me, all my other clothes, um, different coloured clothes on to steer the police away from me, um, which I think later on is one of the reasons I got in so much trouble for it because it was so planned. Um, So I think we got to Kay's house and as I left Dee, she waited at the end of the road. I said, like, I thought this is it. I took a deep breath, I went. Um, sorry, I'm just going to pause a sec. I had an insane theory that just everything would be fine. Um, even when I'd sort of changed my mind from setting fire to the house after thinking, actually, shit, someone could be in there. It's not their fault. I could kill someone and just lighting the fence which I don't think ended up even going up, um, but I pulled the petrol over it. I just had this feeling of everything would be fine, which is so insane looking back now. Um, I was extremely agitated for the entire walk to Kay's house, and although Dee had stayed by my side for everything else, she told me she could not walk further than the end of his road. As I walked towards his house alone, giving one last signal, hand signal to Dee that I was okay, I pulled my hoodie over my head and my bandana over my face. Taking the bag off my back to retrieve the petrol, I unscrewed the lid before pouring the entire contents of the bottle over his garden fence. I had originally intended to pour it through the letterbox, but something made me gain some sanity because I knew that pouring the petrol through that letterbox would surely have made me a murderer. 
Before I could light the petrol, I noticed a neighbour staring out of an upstairs window opposite Kay's house on the phone whilst pointing at me. I knew he was calling the police, so without a second thought, I lit a cigarette and threw it at the puddle of petrol before the. I lit a cigarette and threw it at the puddle of petrol below the fence. As the front garden was engulfed in flames, I took a moment to stare up at the sky with my arms out wide. It felt as though all my demons had left my body and were now nothing more than the black smoke that surrounded me before disappearing into the night sky. I felt a huge sense of release for all the pain and abuse I'd suffered throughout my entire life. It was finally over, I thought. Obviously, the flames went out, thank God. <laughs> um... As I lowered my eyes to face the ground, I heard sirens, so I ran away from the scene as fast as I could. I bolted through an alleyway and quickly took off my black tracksuit, shoving it into my bag along with the bandana and gloves. I untied my hair and the bandages from around my chest, making sure I looked nothing like the person who had stuck the fire. So if I was going to do stuff really naughty, I'd um, bind my chest and wear really baggy tracksuits because I'm tall, so I'd look like a bloke from anybody. <laughs> so that would obviously make it easier to not be identified yeah <laughs> um when i met Dee, she asked if the house definitely went up as she couldn't see any smoke but there was so much adrenaline pumping through in my veins that i couldn't look back at the housing estate i'd run away from i assumed the fire had gone out which came as a relief but i still felt satisfied i'd scared whoever was in the house with no sign of k or any fire engines this is like whilst we're still on the road <laughs> i walked back to Dee's house th through back roads as we shared our thoughts on the night you're fucking mad, Dee said, smiling at me in total shock. Um, we knew we probably wouldn't get our money back, but it was just a... Fuck you moment. Yeah, so yeah. that I wouldn't be taking the piss out of by anybody else. Um, obviously, then we started seeing fire or hearing the sirens. Um, and then we heard like a second set of sirens and stuff throughout the night. So maybe it was probably the police going back to interview people and check... I don't know. We stayed away from there. I was like, I was cocky, but I wasn't cocky enough to go back to the scene of the crimes. Lesson one. <laughs> um, as I sat in Dee's back garden, I knew I could not walk home as it would be too risky with police driving around. I was covered in petrol and the smell was overwhelming. So I phoned mum to see if she could pick me up. So she picked me up and I, she, she could smell the petrol and noticed I was wearing different clothes. So I told her we'd been motorbiking with her friends that had one, which was just lies. <laughs> Um, and that I'd fallen off and got my top muddy and that's why we'd switched tops. Um, when we got home, it was too late at night for me to wash the clothes from my bag, which I'd forgotten to ditch. So I shoved them into a cupboard at the back of my bedroom. The cupboard was in the eaves spread around the perimeter of the roof as my bedroom was in the loft. So I pushed them right to the back of the cupboard where they could not be seen or smelt from my bedroom. As the hours ticked by, I was feeling calmer because I thought the situation was over. But as soon as the adrenaline faded, my depression was back in full swing and I started thinking about suicide. I couldn't bear feeling suicidal as there was nothing I could do about it except self-harm and cry and hope the pain would allow me to escape. I hated feeling nothing as depression tore me away from every feeling I had left in me. So I induced pain through cutting myself to remind me that I was still alive. I think um, this is at 15, but another reason I used to cut myself... I think after starting at 11 on that really <laughs> stupid, but um, I suppose significant way I started, um, I was still getting bullied quite a lot. So I used to think if I hurt myself more than anyone else can, then the pain they cause won't hurt me, which, I mean, helped in the moment, but obviously doesn't help. And I still have scars now when I'm 26 and I'm, it's not very nice, obviously, when you've got niece and nephews and or kids in the family, especially asking, oh, what's that? Why have you got that up your arm? 
And I know they're getting old enough. They're going to be old enough soon to sort of work out what that is. What do you um, say to them? I mean, with young kids, it's quite easy. You can say, oh, I have it's, um, on a safari and had a fight with an alligator or <laughs> some really cool stories. Or I went swimming in the, when we went to aquarium, I jumped in with the shark tank because I wanted to swim. So that's why you've got to do what your mum and dad tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think with older kids, it's a bit harder though. So um, I just try and hide it around older kids. Um, I think after sleeping for almost two hours, I was woken by a loud knock at the front door. It was the police. <laughs> My dad's walking up the stairs with the police. I um, heard them coming and I think um, I'd heard my dad shouting like, the police are here for you, Nita. <laughs> um so I rushed off my bed, grabbed a t-shirt and track, track suit bottoms because he's just sleeping like a t-shirt and underwear with no top underwear. So like it was two male police officers. So I was like rushing, trying to put a bra on and not be so like naked. Because <laughs> um, I suppose you're not, they know you're not going to kick off if you're half naked because it, like you don't want to be exposed, especially at that age. Everyone's, it's such an embarrassing, awkward time to be that age. Um, so as I felt extremely uncomfortable as the police officers were both male and I knew they were going to search me because I always used to. I'd always get searched by male police officers a lot of the time. Never strip search, but I mean touch search, like, and up to hands in your underwear all across. Um, Are they even allowed to do that these days? Not if you're under 16. These days, no. Doubt it. No. Um. So, Nita, but my first and second name, one of them asked, we're arresting you on suspicion of arson with intent to endanger life. <laughs> Um, I froze just the word life was like enough to just scare the shit out of me obviously that's a big thing Um, and I knew by the look on dad's face that it was serious because usually he'd just be like oh come he wouldn't he wasn't a massive fan of the police but he'd always respect them especially in front of us to like us me and my siblings to show that like you should listen to them and it's not cool big or clever to be in trouble with the police Um, but Just the word life was enough to tell me this was serious and I knew by the look on dad's face that he could not protect me from this and was scared as well. As they began searching my room, I was placed in handcuffs, which I resisted and asked, can I at least put a bra on before you take me down the station? They said I could get dressed after they'd done a search, but one of them would have to watch me. Um, I sat quietly on my bed as they searched my room. So I'm obviously 15 at this point. And like having obviously an adult male police officer watch you whilst you get dressed from naked is a bit intimidating. Um, I sat quietly on my bed as they searched my room, being sure not to look at the cupboard where I'd hidden my clothes from that night. Because obviously they're going to be looking at your eyes and if you're like... "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I... To my great relief, they did not find anything, but I still felt embarrassed as they searched my underwear drawer and private diaries, which consisted of broken diet plans and poems about depression. So it was so embarrassing. They found like um, all these like screwed up, scrunched up papers of diet plans that would be like, um, I'll just trigger warning to anyone with eating disorders because it's numbers, but um, it would say like calories this day 200 oh i ate 500 fat ugly bitch don't fucking eat you fat cow and then my weights it would go i'd write the numbers from in pounds because it was losing a kilo is two pounds so it's easy it felt more rewarding to see the pounds drop one by one than kilos which take quite a long time even though it's the same weight so i had this number chart that i'd written every number down from my highest weight which would have been about 
200 pounds at the time I guess which is about 15 stone I think um and it it would go down and I'd got it down to about 150 pounds from 200 by starving myself so I ticked every number off but it would just go down to zero like there wasn't even a goal weight the weight would go down to zero zero was my goal weight (laughs) so they found that and then they'd find like um I think they found a little bag they thought it was speed I think it was um wasn't it crushed up I think it was crushed up um tramadol and paracetamol that we'd mix together and like sell to get money for meth and tell everyone it was coke or whatever which is obviously really bad I don't condone that that's awful but he found that and they tested it for speed and speed apparently came back on that I don't know how maybe it's the tramadol so but he said I'm guessing this is speed obviously because of all the diet plans um they also found the blade that I cut myself with that I'd um obviously hidden in one of my drawers with my diaries but Obviously, my dad was watching this time, so my dad saw it and knew what it was for. So um, when they were searching my room and the other one was watching me get changed, my dad obviously left the room. But um, because I was only allowed to sort of put a bra on, um, bra and a T-shirt on and just like knickers, (laughs) pennies for Americans out there. Um, Obviously, my dad saw my cuts and scars up my arms because I was just in a T-shirt and I used to cut my legs up as well. So um, the police obviously found the blade and it was one of them had watched me get changed and kind of like the one he'd watched me got changed kind of like gasped in shock at the scars and the cuts um I think that's maybe why they didn't take me down the station because probably felt bad for me like I suffered enough maybe but um after they found all the diaries um they oh shit sorry I'm showing the cover can you cut that out please (laughs) I saw the sadness in dad's eyes as he looked at my arms which were covered in scars and fresh cuts that I never meant for him to see mum and dad were suffering because of all the things my sister and I did as they couldn't understand why we were so depressed and felt like it was their fault that hurt me more than anything because I felt so guilty for my pain which was hurting them too when they'd done nothing but love us our entire lives I couldn't understand myself at the time because I was too young to understand that the sexual abuse years ago could have had an effect on what was going on now instead I simply thought that there was something deeply wrong with me and maybe I was just a bad person after finding nothing relating to the arson in question, because they didn't find my clothes, um, which were like three feet away from them behind a wall, <laughs> um, they took the hand cross off my wrist and told me they were no longer taking me to the station. I was still under arrest, but because they'd found nothing suspicious apart from like the speed, but I told them it was speed because I'd admitted to it. They just gave me a caution for that. Um, they didn't take me to the station because I had school the next day and would have missed that. So that's how young I was. So... Um, they said they didn't view me another day and because there was no reason to take me to the station, they said they didn't view me the next day. So I was able to stay home that night. But in a way, I was dreading it because it means that I'd have to explain myself to dad. Whereas if I'd gone to the station, I could have just hid from them till like at least after school the next day. Um, so when the police had gone, dad walked downstairs um So dad walked downstairs with the police officers and showed them out, locking the door behind them. As he made his way back up the stairs, I I counted the steps to see if he was coming back up to the top because we had two flights of stairs, three-story house, massive house my dad built. And his room was on the middle floor and mine was on the top. And I counted the steps, 13, 14 on each floor. And then it carried on. So I knew he was coming up to see me. It's like shitting myself. (laughs) Um, As I counted past the 15th step, I knew he was walking back to my room to confront me what the fuck have you done? You better fucking start explaining yourself, girl. He'd say to me, like, 
I tried to lie and say that I didn't have a clue what the police were talking about, but they'd already been told by Kay's father that Dee and I had been arguing with him earlier that day. The police knew the fire had been started over a drugs dispute because Dee and I were prime suspects as we'd been reported by Kay's father demanding money at his door earlier that day in our school uniform, which is why the police ended up going to the school the next day. The police had told my dad pretty much everything that they knew, which I think because I was under 16, um, whereas I think there's even rules between 16 and 18 of like confidentiality laws, but they told my dad everything and my dad grew up on some really rough estates. So he's thinking, shit, what, you've pissed off some dangerous drug dealers. They're going to burn our house down. Like, cause not knowing it's just probably some middle-class kid in a suburb who was selling a little bit to be cool, you know, um, the police had told dad everything and he wasted no time in telling me he knew, saying, I know you're on drugs. How stupid are you? Do you think you're big enough to set a fucking dealer's house on fire? Don't you know what they'll do to us now? I was crying by this point. I was always scared when my dad kicked off as I worried he might hit me, even though it was mostly just noise and he'd never laid a finger on me. So he never hit us, but he'd shout and um, like smash things, but he'd never ever hit any of us. Um, he went through some shit as a kid that he's not dealt with, but I suppose it's different time and it's not okay for men to say hey well, I need help I'm feeling shit so my dad yeah he'd sort of bottle it all in and they would all come out when in depression and stuff I was angry and upset as tears streamed down my face I tried to force words out my mouth but my voice hardly made a sound I was too afraid to look my dad in the eyes so I simply stared at the ground with my head in my hands and whispered I'm sorry dad I'm sorry He's not even a proper drug dealer. He's just a friend who can get drug. He doesn't know where I live. Nothing's going to happen to you. So I was always so careful to not show the dealers where we lived. And even when my addiction sort of reached its peak for the first time as a kid, my parents went to this like a group course for parents of drug addicts because we had a massive epidemic with that drug we were using as teenagers. And the person running it says, has she brought them to your house? Does she bring dealers to your house? Does she bring any of it to your house? Um, and they were like, no, never, not once. And he said, she's protecting you. And they were like, fuck off, protecting us. You're putting us through all this horrible shit. And he's like, no, she's protecting you. She's keeping it away from the house to make sure no one follows you. You're like, um, so I, I said like, nothing's going to happen to you. You're worrying over nothing. But obviously dad is kind of coming out now that, I am using drugs and it's getting harder to hide. But Dad lowers his voice slightly and was no longer shouting as he sat beside my bed, but he still sounded angry as he looked at me directly in the eyes and said, I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about us, our family. If anything happens because of this, I will never forgive you. And with that, he left my room, leaving me in tears on my bed. I didn't think twice before reaching for my blade and stabbing it deep into my arm, ripping my skin open as the cut screwed deeper. So my dad's just left my bedroom after shouting at me, blaming me for, um, yeah, if any shit comes, then it would be my fault. Um, not knowing who we're dealing with. I didn't really know the dealer from if he was a proper dealer or um, dangerous or anything, but obviously my dad sort of clued up with that sort of stuff and thought I was just a stupid kid. And um, so I cut myself to deal with the pain and... This time I felt guilty. I wanted to hurt myself. So I'm just going to read that bit if it's okay. Um, if anything happens because of this, I will never forgive you. And with that, he left my room, leaving me in tears on my bed. I didn't think twice before reaching for my blade and stabbing it deep into my arm, ripping the skin open as cut screw deeper. 
I carved the words sorry dad on my right arm and then carried on ripping dozens of deep cuts into my left. It doesn't hurt enough, I thought to myself. I wanted to hurt to take back the pain I'd caused my family. As I took the blade a final time, I held it diagonally against my skin before pressing as hard and fast as I could to rip open a cut so deep I could not see blood for the first few seconds. I heard the skin rip wide open, and as I stared down at my wrist, I realised I'd cut through all layers of skin, ripped open a vein, and had cut so deep that it was blue in the centre, which meant it was over a centimetre deep. It was past the fat, and you get little yellow balls of fat, and it's like blue underneath where the veins are, and then the blood starts. Mm. Um, I tried to hold it back together as I desperately needed stitches, but there was no way I could go to hospital, so instead I phoned D. I put the phone on loudspeaker and placed it beside me whilst on my bed trying to stop the bleeding, which was unco- uncontrollable because it was so deep. As soon as I heard Dee's voice on the phone, I felt safe, knowing that I would not be alone if I died from the bleeding. She answered in a soft voice, asking what was wrong as I'd never usually phone her this late for no reason. Dee, I've done something stupid. I need your help. Please can I come to yours? She asked what is it what that she asked what it was that I'd done, but I just couldn't bring myself to tell her, so um, I simply broke down in tears on the phone as she tried to comfort me and asked if I wanted a lift. She got her mum to drive to my house and pick me up as her parents were both awake, unlike everyone at my house. I wrapped a towel around my wrist and tied it tight to try and stop the bleeding before throwing some clothes into a bag and walking out the front door. I felt guilty for hurting my family, so guilty that I knew I could not go back home, at least not for a while. I hated myself for everything I'd done and couldn't cope with the guilt of being alive anymore. I had to leave. When Dee's mum picked me up, she seemed tired but was still happy to see me. Dee threw her arms around me and told me everything was okay now, but she still wanted to know what I'd done that was so stupid. I held my arm up with the towel wrapped tight around it, keeping it held above my heart to stop keeping it above my heart to stop the bleeding. Um when we arrived at Dee's house, she sat me down in the light where she could see my arm which had bled right through the towel, about three or four layers. As I slowly pulled back the towel, Dee gasped in horror as she saw the extent of my cut. Her mum took one look at it and said, you need to go hospital right now, that needs stitches. Um, but obviously I didn't want to go to hospital because then my parents would find out because I was under 16. So um, I didn't want to go hospital. If I went to A&E, they'd know I'd been self-harming and dad had threatened to send me to a mental ward last time he saw this amount of cuts up my arm, so I refused to go. I was scared that I'd be sectioned, but more worried about the police knowing where I was if they found evidence against me for the arson. Um, because they were still kind of turning up. I know once they've arrested you once, it's quite easy to then find evidence and arrest you again, so I didn't want them to know where I was. Um, Dee's mum knew she couldn't talk me into going to hospital, so she brought out a first aid box with some bandages, tapes and scissors. She cut six thin strips and used them to take butterfly stitches along my cut, but she had to clean it first, so I think one of her brothers, her dad and Dee, helped hold me still with my arm. Um, Dee grabbed a towel to, for me to bite onto and her mum scraped the dirt out of the wound because I'd cut with an old non-sterile blade <laughs> um, so I just screamed and like flinching and they, they, they luckily held my arm there and then her <sighs> mum pulled all the crap any crap out of it um, all the dried blood that was starting to clot ripped that out of it to then push the cut together and then proceeded to do butterfly stitches which was I think she'd been a nurse at one point so she knew what she was doing but usually they'd obviously use local anaesthetic for that and obviously we didn't have any so um yeah she stitched that up I think it took about six tape stitches it's about the yay so wide and looked nice neat after that and 
after smoking a spliff with Dee's dad, I went back upstairs to her bed and shared her bed and went to sleep. I was upset and ashamed at what I'd done to my family because whatever happened to them now was my fault, so I knew I couldn't go home. So now I was feeling stress of, shit, what if the dealers turn up and hurt my family? I need to not be there and I need, need everyone on the on the scene to know that I'm not there so that if they hurt me, they're not going to hurt my family. I loved my family too much to let myself near them again and that hurt me more than anything, but I didn't know what else to do. I didn't deserve to be loved anymore. But I think this is when I started running away because... I didn't feel I deserved my family and it's such an odd concept I suppose but depression really does that and I think even now when I'm depressed a few years ago really not that long ago two three years ago I'd stay out all night in the rain just by myself because I didn't feel I deserved a home or family and it's it's quite hard to um abuse makes you feel unlovable and like you don't deserve it so even when people are there for you and trying to love you, you just push them away. Um, so it really does affect you in quite significant ways, I think. Um, the next morning I untied the bandage from my wrist to take a look at my cuts. The one that needed stitches had been held in place with tape, but the bloods had still seeped through and I was worried it might um, soak through the stitches because it was just butterfly stitches. Um, Dee's mum offered us breakfast and asked if we were going to school as she wasn't sure what to expect of us after the night's events. Um, and Dee hadn't been arrested, I don't think, at this point. So um, I don't think her mum knew about it um, because when she did find out, obviously we weren't allowed to hang out. Um, but we got got dressed, went to school and um, my head of year was standing at the front gates as I walked in smoking a cigarette. She called me and Dee straight over to her as she knew we'd bunked off the day before, but I had no intention of talking to her. She didn't care that I was visibly upset when she spoke to me like I was worthless, telling me I was stupid for bunking off and would need to be dealt with later that day. So this is obviously the day before we bunked off to go and get drugs and had gone back to get my phone and then pretty much took that and just gone. <laughs> um I couldn't cope with sitting through lessons that day as I found out less than half an hour into being at school. So I headed over to Dee's form tutor's office. I didn't have him for any lessons, but I had spoken to him a few times when I'd been upset and he seemed like a teacher I could trust at that school. He knew when Dee or I were on drugs and instead of calling the police or alerting other teachers, he'd simply give us the key to his office and tell us to sit in there till we sobered up. Who's a sound teacher? Uh, just a teacher, <laughs> I know, right? Um... I was crying when I went in to see him that morning as I was feeling suicidal and didn't know how to deal with it. So I knocked on his door and he immediately opened it and asked me what was wrong. He wrapped me his arms ugh. He wrapped his arms around me, which was unusual for a teacher, but he was different to the others, so I felt comforted as I sat down in his office. Like looking back now, that's a little bit weird, but it was like a comforting hug. He hugged me the way like a family adult would, like not in a weird sexual way. Um But like sometimes when I'd cut my arms up if I suddenly had because I was always hot all the time even as a kid um I always had either a t-shirt on or sleeves covering my or sleeves up so whenever I come in with sleeves down it's like an upset I think he sort of knew something had happened but um I think I don't know he'd try that kind of tough love I guess that a lot of I suppose teachers have to try um but I'd gone into school before and he'd seen a cut sort of just peeping out of my sleeve and he's gone what's that let me see your arm I'm like oh no it's nothing and he's physically grabbed my wrist and I pulled away but he's grabbed my wrist and 
pulled my sleeve up to look, which is like, you wouldn't get away with that now. Mm. <laughs> but in general, he was decent. Um, so Sam is another, is a not a real name, of a girl we used to hang out with. And she lived on Dee's estate. So we'd hang out with her and she'd been to the abandoned warehouse with us where we'd got the copper wires to strip for money for the drugs and all that. Um, so... Sam had already told that teacher that me and Dee had been arrested the night before, so I think he was expecting us to not be in a learning state. So he let me sit in his office. Um, he also knew I'd run away from home because my mum had phoned the school that morning to ask if anyone had seen me because even when I was running away, I'd still go back to school. Like, I wanted to get GCSEs. I know how important it was, and I always tried to sort of learn from other people's mistakes rather than doing it myself. And I'd not mem- I'd never met one person that had left school, been kicked out, that didn't regret it. So um, I was still going to school, even after the drugs and the arson and the self-harm and staying out all night. Even if I'd slept in the park, I'd still go to school and like have a wash and brush my teeth in the toilets when I got there. Um, and like steal food from food tech if I could make a sandwich. <laughs> Resourceful. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I thought my mum was just angry at me. As with dad, um, as dad has surely spoken to her. So I felt angry the moment I knew she'd phoned the school. Dee's teacher eventually had to leave to teach a lesson, but he gave me the key for his office and told me to lock myself inside until I felt calm enough to go back to class. Sam and Dee were going to check on me in between every lesson, but I couldn't take it after two hours, so decided to leave. I was so depressed and just couldn't be around people anymore, and I knew mum was on her way to the school, so I wrote a note for Sam as I walked out. The note read, Sam, I can't do this anymore. I've had enough. I'm sorry. I'll be at that place we talked about, high up in the sky, tell, tell everyone I'm sorry. <laughs> Meaning that I'd be at the warehouse, as in I can't do school anymore, but obviously it looks like a suicide note. So Sam's grabbed the letter. She's running down the stairs with it. And at this point, the head teacher's walking up the stairs from the bottom. And so she's dropped the freaking note and the teacher's caught it and she's read the note and she's right where is she do you know where she is we need to get down there now so the head teacher drove sam down to the warehouse whilst the weird teacher used to let us in the office who was nice drove d and they got the police and fire engine and an ambulance (laughs) um (laughs) So I know committing suicide was selfish, but I was traumatized and I felt suicidal. So, I mean, I'd kind of go and sit on a high place to just, with no intentions, but not good intentions either. And I'd go and sit there and just, just take a breather and not really care if I fell kind of thing. So sort of not a proper planned suicide, but I mean, I'd just go and see what I felt like doing whilst I was up there. I knew Sam would know if I was talking about I knew Sam would know I was talking about the abandoned warehouse as I told her I'd jump off the roof if I ever got too much for me. Sorry, I'm gonna read that again, I can't. I knew Sam would know I was talking about the warehouse in the letter, as I told her that's where I'd be and I'd jump off if life ever got too much for me. But I also go there to hang out and just calm down. So I didn't know, however, that the police had turned up at school wanting to speak to Danielle and me. So by the time Sam found the note, we were Oh, by the sorry, the police were already there looking for us. <laughs> Forgotten this, sorry. So by the time Sam found the note, the police were already walk. Um, the police walk up the stairs with the head teacher, um, who found the note. That's why the police were there so quick. Sorry, um, my memory's jumbled. <laughs> um, so she was looking for me in the office. That's why, with the police walking up the <laughs> stairs as Sam's running down with this note. <laughs> um, 
Sam was running down the stairs at the exact same moment as she tried to run past the police. She dropped the note in a panic and could only watch as they read it in disbelief. They immediately knew it was a suicide. They, amuse- oh, they immediately thought it was a suicide note. Um, so they rushed back to their cars. Sam and oh, fuck. <laughs> they rushed back to their cars. Sam went with that head teacher, and then Dee went with the other teacher, and, and then the police. And they also called the fire brigade and ambulance. So meanwhile, I'd already climbed onto the roof and was thinking about jumping. I sat with my legs dangling over the edge whilst I drank a whole bottle of vodka neat that I'd stolen from a shop on the way, staring up at the clouds as I thought about joining them. As I stood up and took one final look at the ground, my entire life flashed before my eyes. I thought about the rape, the fire, my depression, along with every other reason to jump. But then I thought about the people I'd be leaving behind. That What would it mean for them if I jumped? I thought about my parents and my brothers, what they'd have to go through if they lost me. My sisters and my twin. The reason for jumping was so that I'd no longer be a burden. The reason for jumping was so that I'd no longer be a burden on them. But I know I'd put them through an even worse hell by ending my own life. I thought about my older sister and wondered about the conversation she'd be less facing with her kids as they grew up, as they were still little. How she'd have to tell them they'd had another auntie who was too selfish to face life. Then I thought about my twin and knew she could not cope without me. How could I be so selfish after everything we'd been through together? I wanted to jump so bad because of the pain. It was surreal and I just wanted it to end. But I knew I couldn't burden my family with the pain I'd leave behind. No one would have, no one, none of them deserved that. After crying at the pitiful sight of my pathetic life, I threw the bottle over the roof instead of myself and slowly made my way back down the ladder. I saw the police cars rushing to the scene and sirens blaring, but I managed to flee before they saw me, not realising that both Dee and Sam were in their cars with the teachers. And I, felt, I was extremely drunk by this point, and although I was worried about returning home, I barely thought twice before walking there. I don't remember much apart from arguing when I entered the house, but my older sister was downstairs and noticed that I was drunk. She didn't know the full extent to which Dad and I had been arguing, but she knew I'd been in big trouble with the police and wanted to find out why. That's why she was round. After realising I was not going to open my mouth, she tried to joke around with me, talking about girl stuff and boys. She went on to ask in a sarcastic voice, what's the furthest you've gone with a boy? Did he touch your minky? I snapped back in anger as tears filled my eyes. He fucking raped me. I then pushed past her and stumbled up the stairs to my bedroom as fast as I could, barricading my door before collapsing on my bed and rocking myself to sleep. Mum eventually found out and asked if this was true, as Dee's mum had also told her prior to this, if I'd ever mentioned it whilst drunk at her house. I was still pretty drunk when I let mum into the room and she asked, is it true, Nita, who did this? Um, so this obviously after my sister, I think my sister had spoke to me, my older sister, before calling mum to say, look, you know, we need to tell them, but do you want to or do you want me to? And I asked her to. Um, and when mum did eventually ask me about it, she sort of asked, did it happen to your twin as well? And we said like everything and the details and obviously not the details of what happened, but told her who and when and sort of how. Um, I told her it was Drew and James and that it went on for years. I told her that my twin was abused too until the age of 11 like me. Mum had tears in her eyes and I felt guilty for telling her as I knew it greatly upset her. She looked at me along with Dad, who had also entered my room by this point, and said, this explains everything, you don't have to fight us anymore. I didn't understand how this solved anything. How could something that happened so long ago mean anything significant now? Dad told me that Drew had always seemed afraid of him, even when we were kids. And now he understood why. 
Mum and dad told me that the dates added up because the year of the rape was the year that my behaviour started spiralling out of control, getting me into trouble at school and outside with the police. They understood that my depression was caused by this and maybe the reason I'd started drinking and taking drugs was to deal with their sexual abuse that had happened all those years ago. Then they told me that it was not my fault and they just wished I'd hold them sooner so they could have helped stop it or done something about it. But I was too young to know it was abuse at the time and I felt like it was all my fault. I hated myself for the sexual abuse because it made me dirty and disgusting and that's how I felt. But mum and dad thought everything would change now that they knew the truth. Um, I wish I could say that my life changed positively there and then and we all lived happily ever after, but sadly it didn't. Mum and dad felt guilty for not being able to stop what had happened and I felt guilty for everything I'd put them through. I was still depressed so continued to take harder and harder drugs and that caused more arguments with them than ever before. Dad would pressure me into talking to the police about the sexual abuse and I knew he was only trying to help but I was not ready to talk about it so I continued to argue with him more than ever. Being home was like treading on eggshells 24-7 so I preferred to stay out and take drugs on the estate where Dee lived. When I was feeling suicidal I'd start an argument deliberately to provoke a reaction from mum or dad so they'd tell me to leave. Then I'd run away to Dee's house with my already packed bag that I kept in my wardrobe and I'd spend the night taking drugs or just hanging out on whatever we could get. If I was high on anything harder than cocaine, I know I couldn't even be seen at Dee's house, so I'd roam the streets all night high on drugs by myself. Dee stuck by my side most of the time, but as the weeks went by, I noticed her acting strange whenever we were high or drunk. She would constantly look at me with tears in her eyes and say, Nita, I've done something bad. I'm so sorry. You shouldn't be my friend. I thought she was talking about her depression, which was maybe causing her to feel like she didn't deserve friends, so I stuck by her and we continued to stay as close as we'd always been. At this point then, did your parents contact Drew or James's family about this? Um, So quite a lot happened, I don't think directly, but as my drug use kind of spiraled out of control, um, there was one day I'd put on a Facebook post. They did call the police, but there was one day, so the police were obviously looking into it and we were friends with younger siblings of the abusers because we didn't know that that was his older brother. We didn't realise. So it spread round by word of mouth to all of our, anyone who knew us, people at school were asking us about it, adults, parents of kids that we didn't know were asking. And then obviously the odd one where it was like, "Did that? I'm sorry that happened to us too. We're going to the police too. Um, but most of it was just shitty and um, not very nice. And What were their parents' attitude? So the people who did it, their parents were like, oh, liars, uh, um, saying we were running around like a pack of wild animals and we were always trouble, but they only knew us after the abuse happened. And I think the mum knew that it happened. She actually ended up having a stroke a few years later, I think from stress in her 30s. Is that Drew's mum or James? Um, I'm not going to say just for anonymity, okay, but okay. one of the mums. And that's horrible because it's not her fault. Like she was always as good as she could be to the kids. But, and I don't blame her, but, there was one day when my drug addiction was really bad. I think I was still 16, 15. No, I was 16 on the meth at this point, methadrone, which I'll get into in a minute. But I'd written on Facebook. I didn't care. I'd hidden it from my family, but I'd written a post on Facebook saying, has anyone got any? I don't care who it is. Please call me. I'm desperate on Facebook. <laughs> any response? Yeah. So um <laughs> got a few private messages and I'd, you know you can when you do a facebook post you can share to friends except and then block out anyone you don't want it to see i'd forgotten that i was still friends with their mum on facebook because i was still friends with their kids with 
the younger brother. So she'd driven round to my parents' house and was shouting outside in the middle of the daytime. There were school kids going past, all the neighbours saw. And she's shouting at my dad like, your daughter's a fucking drug addict. And my dad goes, yeah, well, at least my son's not a fucking... <laughs> so all the neighbours saw that and... um yeah, all the neighbours saw that my dad went round to explain to them that we're not like this, this druggy skank family and went to explain what had happened. And um, I think she drove off after that, but a lot of people started asking questions after that. And, and most of our neighbours had kids that went to our school, so it's like everybody knew everybody. So a lot of people found out about that. Surprised they didn't get lynched. <laughs> um, I just... So I started using drugs a lot by that time. And... I don't know, it's like you get sloppy with drug addiction. I think once you start at the beginning of it becoming a problem, it goes from just having fun and being able to function to knowing you can't function but still thinking you're on top of it because you're hiding it, you're washing and getting dressed and like clean clothes, making sure your hair and makeup's done if you wear makeup. And after a while you just stop giving a shit and you start getting sloppy but you still think people can't tell. And I started getting sloppy and like... I'd always brush my teeth and have a wash, but I mean, my, my I'd go out with no makeup on, my p- pale face, bags under my eyes, just didn't care. Uh, blood dried under my nose, it was really bad. Um, so I'd still be getting drunk and high with D, and it was the speed I don't think we ever got hold of again, but I mean, it, we managed to get like coke, um, sort of whatever we could get really, bit of MD, but she'd when she was really high and drunk she'd especially if we were on our own as opposed to with this big group of friends that we'd sort of accumulated um she'd just randomly start crying and say I don't deserve you as a friend no you can't you don't need me I can't be your friend I've done something bad but wouldn't tell me what it was so I thought she was talking about a depression because obviously that made me feel like I didn't deserve anyone so I it just made me love her more and say that I trust I was there for her um but one evening I had a knock at the door from the police who'd arrested me, who arrested me on further evidence on the arson investigation. Dee and I had both been interviewed already and I told the police that Dee had waited for me at the end of the road. So I told them, I didn't even ask for a solicitor. Like, I think I was a bit manic. I was definitely psychotic. It's when I was seeing and hearing things a little bit because of the depression. And I'd gone in there. They said they'd asked me for a solicitor. And I was like, oh, nah, thinking they took an hour last time. That's ages. So I won't ask for a solicitor. <laughs> Answered all their questions. Like, yeah, yeah, just that little fire. Like thinking I'd get a pat on the wrist. Like, <laughs> chill. And can I go now? Can I Can I have some crisps? Like, <laughs> just like, um, <sighs> so <laughs> the, she'd been interviewed as well, but I was didn't want her getting in trouble. And they said, you know, she's going to get in trouble too. So I'd said, no, she waited at the end of the road. It was all me. Um, so I told her that she'd wait at the end of the road when I poured petrol over Kay's fence as she was my friend and I didn't want her to get in trouble. I told them truthfully that she'd introduced me to him and that half the money was hers, but it seemed she did not tell the same story in her interview. The police searched my house a second time and found the big bag of petrol soaked clothes, including my shoes, which I'd left a footprint in petrol on the ground in the pattern on the shoes. And I'm there thinking like, oh, wow, that neighbour must have been a good witness to notice all those little details Hmm. (laughs) Um, I thought the witness had described my clothes and bag which was how the police came to find out what I'd been wearing um, down to the second layer so they'd found the first layer of clothes which was hidden in the eaves and where I'd hidden it but they went straight to the eaves 
like they they didn't even search the room they went straight to that cupboard so obviously the only person I told was D but I just did I thought nah they must have just not looked in there properly um it's me and my twin used to sometimes switch bedrooms like can I can I say that's my room because she'd never have anything naughty <laughs> um but yeah yeah that's my bedroom and I just let them search for all her stuff <laughs> As at the second interview, I made no attempt to defend myself, but mum was sitting through the interview with me this time and explained that I was angry because I'd worked hard for the money that Kay stole. Mum, along with my solicitor, agreed that it was best I used the rape as a sob story to show the courts that I was not an arsonist or some psychopath, but simply a child who was abused and attempted to start the fire for release. But the fire had gone out by itself. Its damage caused to the fence was minimal and I was told to say that I was not intending to endanger lives but merely wanted to cause my money's worth of damage at his house. The police eventually dropped the charge of arson with intent to endanger life and changed it to attempted arson but I was still facing a two-year prison sentence if the judge wanted to be harsh at court. Months went by and I was continually brought back to the station for more interviews, which caused me more and more worry each time. I continued to socialise with Dee and we went on to find other dealers, so continued to use cocaine and speed. We also tried magic mushrooms, MDMA and crack, along with countless other varieties of alcohol and prescription drugs. When the court date finally arrived, I was bailed to reappear on a later date because the judge needed more time to decide the verdict. My twin was extremely depressed at this time as she was petrified of the fact that I could go to prison because she didn't think she could cope at home being being at home if I wasn't there because obviously all the arguing with mum and dad and it was just a really horrible house to be in. Like there was a lot of love in that house but there was a lot of pain as well. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favourite financial app, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. Um, I'm just curious then. So the dealer, like, was that his defense? That you, they'd ripped you off? And yeah. from, your motive was to get this property, do this property damage. I mean... Did he like to say to the cops, I took this money for drugs and I'm her dealer? I mean, yeah, did they know? I think it was his parents. It was his parents' house. He was 26, but living at home. He's 24 or 26, but his parents had called the police and said that they'd seen us arguing, demanding money earlier that day in our school uniform. Um, did they not perform a search on his house then? I don't think so. No more than looking for evidence at... Uh, treating them as victims but they knew he was a dealer i don't think so not at that time also, they didn't even obviously, know. Well, like, what was the money no. for why are there two young girls demanding money 
but I think, yeah, he told them, yeah, they've just, someone's tried to set our house on fire. I don't know why. It's not us, but the parents have put two and two together with, yeah, it's something to do with our son. He's probably pissed somebody off. And I think he'd owed people money before. So I think, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think if it had been his house, I doubt he would have called the police, but I think because the neighbor called the police anyway. So they couldn't really say, no, don't don't worry. You know, we're just dropped a bit of petrol outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're using the rope as a sob story. I mean, it's not really a sob story because it really happened, but it was, we had to sort of tell them everything so that they knew, look, I'm not just some asshole that's been brought up with a nice home family, everything's stable and just decided to go and try and kill someone that I'd actually been through all this stuff, all this abuse. I mean, how do you word something like that? I think even at that age, I was quite matter of fact about it. And there was quite a lot of kids my age that had been abused. So it was all, and a lot of kids are self-harmed and drank. Um, so a lot of us had been abused, I think, out of the, our group of about 12. And there were six girls in our group that we'd hang out. With. Five of us had been full-on raped and the other one had been touched. So um, facing the two-year prison sentence... Months went by and I was continually brought into the station for more interviews, which caused more and more worry each time. I continued to hang out with Dee and we went on to find other dealers and tried shrooms, MDMA and crack, along with loads of different prescription drugs. Just anything to be out of it. When the court date finally arrived, I was bailed to reappear on a later date because the judge needed more time to decide on a verdict. Um, Sorry, I've read this bit already. Um, but my twins worried about me going to prison. I hated being at home because I could not face the sight of my loved ones slowly dying around me. And dad had just been told that his mum had terminal cancer, my nan. So on top of this, my twin was struggling with gender identity and her sexuality, which I thought was only because of what had happened to us regarding the sexual abuse. My family had always been very accepting of sexuality and told us from a very young age that if any of us had turned out gay or transgender, they would still love us the same and just cared that we were happy. Even from about five or six, I remember sort of being told and thinking, yeah, when you fall in love with someone, it's you don't know if it's going to be a girl or a boy. And that was sort of all I knew from about five years old. It's a very accepting household, despite all the shit that went on. I was also confused about my sexuality because I was petrified of men after what had happened all those years ago. But I later found out that I was not interested in women either. I later found out that I was not really interested in women either sexually, so it put me in a very confused place. My twin and I would argue... And I hated that more than any other arguments at home because we were so close that we took all of our anger out on each other. I was expelled eventually from the second secondary school for my behaviour and drug use, which which left me too young for work but too messed up for school. I was angry at mum for signing papers to say that I was being homeschooled without any work or test, um, which she was kind of coerced into signing so that none of the schools had to deal with me because... By this point, half my friends, including Dee, were going to the naughty school. So then my mum was like, I'm not driving you miles, 10 miles every single day each way for you to go and piss about with your friends <laughs> at naughty school. Sorry, but, who has to? Um, I think so. The school people, the school board. So because when I'd gone to the second high school, it was out of my area. They lived in one. That area came under a different borough, that school. And I lived in a different borough. So the 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 borough the school was in were saying, well, no, she's your problem because she lives in your borough. And they were going, well, no, she's your problem because she was kicked out of school in your borough. So my mum just signed something that meant I was no one's problem. And I was 15. So I missed the whole of year 11, but started work illegally. I eventually found a job um, 
which was paid cash in hand and they knew I was too young for work. But that meant they took the piss out of me with money. I was working 7.30am till 5pm for £30 a day and sometimes they just wouldn't pay us for some days. What was that doing? It worked out about £2.90 an hour. Wow. Um, 10 years ago. So not that. I think minimum wage was about £5, £6 at the time. And that was delivering leaflets. Um, I'm going to get onto that in a minute. I'm trying to keep it in order. I apologise. <laughs> um, I was livid because it seemed as though the entire world was against me, whilst every choice I made turned out to be the wrong one. So with school, despite all the shit that was going on in my head and everything, I still wanted to do well. I still wanted to get GCSEs. I wanted to go and try and be a doctor. Like I had loads of... I really, I really found it academic work easy I was still getting like A stars and doing A level work even in year 8 and like despite my behaviour I'd just come in for the test day and do it Um, when the second court date arrived I found it strange that only I had been bailed to appear and not D as we were both in this together it was only then when we got to court that I read the papers of what everyone had said in their interviews I started to realise what had happened um Mum held an interview. Mum held the interview records first before saying to me, "I think you should read this." I saw Dee's name printed on a sheet of paper, with which almost looked like a drama script, with her lines in one colour and the police's on another. I read the first few lines, which said something along the lines of, "When asked about the night in question, Dee said, I did not know Kay until Nita introduced me to him. I did not want to buy cocaine, but Nita seemed desperate for drugs.'" Nita set the house on fire and it was all her idea, not mine. I've never even tried drugs before, Nita. Bollocks. <laughs> um, so this is the first time she's fucked me over. I went Nita on to read. Grass. Yeah, like... Her house is going to go up next. <laughs> and obviously that's on the same interview that I've said it was all her and not, it was all me and not her. So I've been a loyal friend and she's kind of dropped me, dropped me in the shit. <laughs> I went on to read that Dee had described every item of clothing I was wearing down to the logo printed on my bag that I hid all the petrol clothes in and the underclothes, the outer clothes and the shoes and the pattern on them and the size my shoes were, which obviously coincided. She probably with went in on you. That's why when they came around <laughs> the second time, that's why when the police came around the second time, they knew exactly where to look for the eaves. And yeah, that's why they found everything straight away and arrested me and not her little witch this next bit I suppose my reaction to that is probably quite weird but I realised what she's done how could she betray me like this after everything we'd been through I felt as though a knife had stabbed me in the stomach ripping through my organs as it surfaced through my back I had to leave the courtroom I needed to run I needed to get away from it all but I couldn't even breathe as I ran out of the rating room I barely made it outside before crying I wanted to burst into tears, but I was surrounded by who I thought was hardened criminals, and I knew I wouldn't stand a chance in prison if anyone saw me crying. (laughs) So dramatic. (laughs) Um, Instead, I stood outside smoking as I flicked through the contact list on my phone, wondering whether or not to call Dee. What would I even say to her? How can you make up after that? I was so overwhelmed with emotions that I didn't even know where to start if I phoned her, so I put my phone back in my pocket and started walking back inside. Mum could see how upset I was. Mum could see how upset I was, but deep down I thought she would probably be happy now as Dee's actions would mean I'd surely have to stop hanging out with her and our friendship would be over because Mum and Dad had 
obviously we'd always get in shit together. I think we did a crate one, a crate run once where I ran into a shop, Dee's idea, but I think they were like, yeah, so-and-so done one once. I don't think anyone's actually ever done one. I just wanted to look cool in front of all these new friends. So I'd um, gone into the shop and there was a 24 crate of super tenant cans, which is a 9% lager absolutely disgusting it's trap juice trap juice yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and i was like picked her up and walked towards the stood by the counter as if i'm queuing to pay and then someone opened the door one two three bam legged it it's like shouting in nepalese the the shop owner he's come out chasing me one of them's got a baseball bat there's like three of them three other blokes in a little van chasing us down the road the one on foot's got a baseball bat and they're all shouting in Nepalese at each other shouting ass legging it I've gone down this hill and obviously I'm fat and I'm fit from drinking I can't run (laughs) so I've dropped it and I've like forward rolled over it like a flip and all these cans are just pissing out with alcohol spraying so we just picked up everything we could carry maybe five or six cans each and just carried on running and we hit on I ended up going through someone's front garden and behind their van I think we laid under somebody's van that was parked in their front garden and we laid under it for like at least a few minutes and then they'd opened the door and this must have been 10 20 minutes under this van the van had gone the van that was chasing us was past us and we're driving around the estate looking for us and we were laying under this van that was in someone's driveway yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and some like stranger opened the door was like saw us under the van Looked up, saw the police helicopter, saw us under that, and he's like, do you want to come in? And we were like, yeah, please, mate. It's like, sorry, can we come and hide in your house? <laughs> wow. And he took you in? <laughs> yeah, I thought if it's kicked off, like, there's two of us, one of him. <laughs> um, I think we gave him a beer, and he pulled out some wine, and we just hung out there for a couple of hours. <laughs> Why As not? You do. <laughs> As you do. Um, <laughs> uh, so, obviously, my, my parents didn't want me hanging out with her anyway, so I thought they'd be happy now, but... Mum could see how upset I was, but deep down I thought she'd probably be happy as these actions would mean I'd have to stop hanging out with her now. Mum and Dad had tried to stop us seeing each other countless times since I'd started taking drugs, but that was the very reason I couldn't leave her. I was torn between keeping a backstabbing friend so that I could have my precious drugs or giving up the drugs alongside... or giving up the drugs along with Dee so that I could have my family back. I pondered on this thought all day and when we finally called into the courtroom, when we were finally called into the courtroom, I couldn't even concentrate on my case. Luckily, I had a lawyer speaking for me, but I still struggled to take in anything that was being said. Occasionally, the judge would ask me a few questions and I knew how important it was that I backed myself up, but the stress of these actions had disabled my mind from focusing on anything else. Mum tried to defend me. Mum tried to defend me. She listened to the judge comparing my case with much more serious retaliation crimes, such as the house fire started by a 12-year-old back in the 90s that killed four people um, and other child murderers they were comparing my case to. Um, So, like, they were literally putting me in the same ballpark, sort of, um, like, the Bolger, Jamie Bolger murder. They they were putting me in this kind of ballpark, with kids who'd murdered and then kids who'd murdered adults, kids who'd murdered their parents and arsonists and child arsonists, like, and they were trying to, I think, see if I was crazy or not, I guess. And when I you think, were hearing this, how scared were you? I think I was more like, it was making me realise how serious this is. Um, I was more scared for my parents, my family, because they were trying to fight. I think that also in, instated the fact, shit, I can't ask for mental health help because they already think I'm crazy. <clears throat> 
And um, I think when a kid comes from a fairly normal looking home with nothing on the surface, like growing up in a stable home environment with loving parents, really good at school, smart, good at sports, good at school, good at everything, and then does a really shocking crime, they think there's got to be something mentally not right. Were you glad you only did defence at this point? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would have gone to prison or a mental hospital, like a high secure one. Brought Um, both. Yeah, I think they still housed women at the time. (laughs) Um, Gosh. So mum pleaded with the judge, but this case is nothing like any of the fires you referred to. The incidents you're describing caused murders, which my daughter didn't even succeed in setting the house on fire. She only wanted to cause her money's worth of damage, not death. She's not a psychopath. The judge and police involved knew I hadn't killed anyone, but it was to the extent of which I'd planned the arson that made it so serious. I'd brought the petrol out from my house, roamed the streets with it until dark, and wore two different layers of coloured clothes to it. I'd bought the petrol out from my house, roamed the streets with it until dark, hidden in a drinking flask. I'd then wore two layers of different coloured clothes to avoid matching the police descriptions. I'd worn gloves to hide my fingerprints, as well as covering my hair so as not to leave any DNA at the scene, um, which caused the judge to think that if I had murdered anyone, I would have tried to discard their bodies too. That's what they said. Um, they love creating work for themselves. <laughs> for real. Because of this, everyone involved thought I was capable of committing murder in the future and that theref- and therefore wanted to lock me up regardless of how trivial the situation was. Because of the extent I've hidden everything too, they thought I would be capable of doing a murder and hiding the bodies and getting away with it. So they were trying to lock me up to prevent that. But like, if you get locked up for thoughts or capabilities, then everyone would be in prison, surely. <laughs> mm. I was terrified of this because I didn't want to go down the criminal route, which would waste my life from the moment I went into prison. But with everyone having the same opinion of me, I began to wonder if I really could kill someone. I didn't want to think about it as I didn't want to believe it. But when everyone expected bad behavior from me, they'd usually get it. I think that stems back to like in school um, when the teachers, obviously you do get kids that misbehaving and being little sods. But when you start treating them, horribly before they start kicking off then they're going to kick off to show that that's what all you expect of them um did your dad speak to the court i think he'd come in once i think he'd always be working usually but he'd spoke to the lawyers saying like she's not mental they pissed off she's just a bit she's a stupid kid that's done this and um it's quite strange with when it comes to professionals my mum and dad will suddenly vouch like oh no, she's she really ill at the moment. Oh, she has got mental health. Yeah, she suffered a lot. But then to my face, it's like, oh, shut up. There's nothing wrong with you. It's like, can't you fucking be nice to my face and bitch behind my back like a normal person, not the other way around? <laughs> How did it make you feel hearing your mom speak on your behalf? It was horrible because when my mum especially would say nice things, it would make me think, well, I'm I'm not those things. I don't have potential. I'm not talented. I'm worthless. So when someone was saying all these nice things about me, I found it really hard to listen to and I'd think it would make me think even more that I'm not those things. So it was really hard to hear it. Um, I suppose nice to know that I'm obviously loved and stuff. I never felt a lack of love in that house. But there was so much pain and that brought everything. It all came together, the pain and the love. And I suppose then you associate love with pain and it's, it's hard. A lot of mixed emotions. Um, 
The trial went on for what felt like hours. Then finally a decision was made by the judge. As I stood up inside a glass box, I watched mum cry as the judge began to speak. I felt so guilty for the pain I was causing mum and I felt worse knowing that if I did go to prison, the court security would take me away and I'd be unable to comfort her. However, the judge began to speak as I let out a huge sigh of relief as I learned I would only receive a nine-month referral order, which is fuck all for that really, isn't it? Um, sorry, then any time I got arrested after that, they'd just add another month onto the order and it would all get wiped from my record when I turned 18. So I was like, felt invincible after oh, that. Shit. And I got to do loads of fun stuff on that. Like we went on a professional graffiti course and one of the things that was added to the order was for spray painting. So it's like they were like, okay, if you're going to graffiti, at least do it properly. <laughs> um, got to set up a radio station at quite a big radio place. Um, got to like petrol go-karting. Um, what's that like? It's like fake snowboarding for bog- tobogganing, something like that. Loads of different days out and stuff. Um, just with all the other naughty kids on this order. We had, and went to the RSPCA, did a week-long course there, training animals. All this... Um, Free, cool stuff, really, and private boxing lessons. So that's my twin. She kept her head down at school and got nothing. <laughs> um, and I remember her saying, "Like it's not fair. Like how can you get all this cool stuff? Yeah, for yeah. being naughty, and she's obviously being well behaved and got nothing from it. Like, but in another way, it's sort of we." There was a lot of therapeutic value in all those things and you're not just there to go out for the day, you're there with deep conversations with these adults and meeting some really interesting people who've been through a lot of similar things and it was helpful when I massively believe in like reformation rather than punishment, uh, rehabilitation rather than punishment, even for the worst, most disgusting crimes like just locking people up and throwing away the key isn't helping. And then they come out more angry um, and hurt more people. So, um, yeah, I think it did help and I still vote for that. <laughs> um, her parents brought us a bottle of cider each and we smoked weed whilst walking to meet another dealer before bumping him and running off with his goods like Kay had done to us. <laughs> He didn't have much money, but we still managed to get away with over five grams of coke and all money. Oh, <laughs> so we laughed together as we legged it after beating him and loafing him lying on the floor. I didn't beat him up or nothing, not that bad, but we're like 15 at this So what did time. you do to him? Smack him. I felt guilty if well, we just pushed him on the floor and then took his, Judo took his stuff. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I felt bad for beat for hitting him as he was unable to defend himself due to a small frame and weak build, but the drug world was a dangerous place and if you didn't if you couldn't be a predator you'd become prey. <laughs> it's so dramatic. Um Okay. I'm gonna have to read this but as it says, is that okay? So Court's finished. I'm back at home with mum, but I didn't want to be at home. Obviously, I was relieved to get just the referral order, even though I had three meetings a week. So it was almost every day that I was having to meet with a youth offending team worker, my yacht worker. So on the whole, I was deeply traumatised and upset by being betrayed so harshly by D. Sorry. I couldn't understand what would possess someone to act so coldly towards their friends. But then I remembered how I'd struggled so hard to make friends my entire life, so it was probably destined to happen. I was angry beyond words, and we had always said that snitches got stitches, 
but I needed my drugs more than I needed revenge, so I foolishly stayed friends with her. There was an awkward silence when I entered Dee's house after telling mum I was going to see other friends on their estate. What was your first conversation with Dee like then after you knew she'd snitched? Were you acting? So it was a bit odd. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to read it, I suppose. Um, it's quite mixed feelings. Um, there was an awkward silence when I entered Dee's house after telling mum that I was going to go and see other friends on her estate. Dee's mum spoke first, asking how court went as I sat down beside Dee. You didn't get sent down then? I smiled politely and replied, nah, I got off with a referral order. Sorry. No thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> I smiled politely and replied, no, I got off with a referral order. As I continued to speak, Dee asked if there was anything else I wanted to tell them. Like she knew, and the mum was sat there like, mm, like they knew. I took a deep breath and said nervously, I read what you said in your interview. I want you to know that I am upset, but you're still my friend and I understand why you did it. Dee interrupted me before I could finish speaking as guilt consumed her face. I'm so I'm sorry, I was scared. I didn't know what to say. I'd never been arrested before. I don't think I deserve you as a friend after this. I'm sorry. I looked her in the eyes and told her that it was okay. But I needed her more than anyone because she'd been there for me through so much. She hugged me and apologised again and again, but I told her she didn't need to worry as I'd still be there for her and I forgave her. Inside, I knew that our friendship was worthless beyond this point, as her parents couldn't even understand why I was still there. But I burst into tears and told them that I didn't want to lose her. I think they admired me for me. F- I think they admired me for forgiving her, but at the same time, they must have been suspicious to know that I was using her for something, as I'd be stupid to stay friends with her after what she had done. I vowed never to trust her again or anyone for that matter, even if I spent more time with her than my own family. It's like the old saying goes: "Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer." So I think they definitely knew something was up. But I did understand, obviously, she probably was really scared and her mum was there in the interview with her, like would have known. So she wasn't just hiding herself and her that side of her from the police. She was hiding it from her mum, which is probably way scarier than any police. Um, and But she'd been there for me for a lot as well, so I couldn't let it go and... I think she really was the only thing, only reason at some point for me to keep going and my only escape from pain um, with depression. So I stayed friends with her, but it was it was gone. We, we both knew. Um, so I think that night, It was almost 9pm and I wasted no time in following through with the real reason I'd gone back, which was to get drugs. I told Dee that we should celebrate me not going to prison, so she scraped up some money from around the house and we were on our way to buy drugs. Her parents bought us a bottle of cider each to celebrate not going to prison. Um, So that wasn't like a usual thing, but um, so they did that and I showed the front cover again. So (laughs) So you were 15 Uh, at this point? Yeah. Oh, wow. Were the local dealers shit scared of you guys now? Probably. I'd maybe put my name for myself, the mental one that will set your house on fire. And obviously rumours get round like, yeah, the whole house went up. Like (laughs) Firestarter. So we scraped around some money as much as we could, got her mum to buy some alcohol and... 
Her parents put us a bottle of cider each and we smoked weed whilst we walked to meet a cocaine dealer before bumping him and running off with his cash <laughs> um, and his drugs like Kay had done to us. The first dealer you interact with gets robbed. <laughs> um, <laughs> word must be spreading about oh you guys. I <laughs> oh, don't, we were pissing off like bigger and bigger people. <laughs> um, there was sometimes we'd like meet up with them and go, yeah, we'll give you sex for drugs, but then we'd just fuck off with their drugs and money and without sex and we'd just <laughs> leg it. <laughs> Trailer. <laughs> it's kind of their own fault. <laughs> it's not like they could call the police. Oh, I was trying to pay for some kids for some sex and they just fucked off. Wow. And I kind of felt invincible after that as well because obviously anytime I'd get arrested, I'd just get another month added to the order. And now I'd obviously almost set someone's house, well, tried to set a house on fire of a dealer and, he, and he'd done nothing in retaliation. And we'd robbed a few people, just dealers. Like, no, we wouldn't rob street people or anything. Like, um, <laughs> and nothing had happened. And everyone would go, oh, I'll get them. And then they don't. So, so what was the aftermath with the dealer of the house that was the fence went on fire? Was there any, like... Repercussions? Yeah. Had a couple of text arguments, but we stayed away from him. And... Had a weird text from him whilst it was all, I think after the court case of him trying to say, sorry, let's me out, we'll go for drinks or I'll bring you drinks because we were too young to go into a pub. <laughs> Setting you up somehow. Yeah. And um, I think we met up once. He might have been one. He was one of the ones that we were like, yeah, we'll meet up where we can have some fun. And then he was like, cool, I can get you some drugs, but um, my friend's going to be here too. Do, will you have fun if we if I bring my friend? I'm like, yeah, cool. So we've gone there kind of with, with their intention of them giving us money for drugs, but we just fucked off with his money and his drugs. So, yeah, we're just we're gonna go get some more weed from this other person, and then we've just fucked off with it. So you did get your money back. A little bit of it, <laughs> about fifty <laughs> quid. <laughs> um, so we kind of pushed that guy. I think there was a bit of a punch, but he was. I felt bad about it, but um, I think in that world you can't be taking the piss out of or show weakness, or it felt like. And I was depressed and stuff anyway, so I just wanted drugs, and it wasn't. I wouldn't hurt anyone that that either isn't involved in that circle or has that is any of my friends or family, anyone that we know, or just a random person. But with dealers, I just felt like fair yeah, game. Yeah, and like if I needed it enough, and I was always under that impression of like, well, I'm going to kill myself soon anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do. So we robbed him, got five grams of coke, so we laughed together and legged it off. <laughs> um, we laughed together and legged it, looking for a place to get on it. Um, we snorted half gram lines on top of smoking bongs and drinking, so it wasn't long before we were completely out of our minds and in no fit state to make rational decisions. Although I couldn't physically see vivid hallucinations when I was high, my imagination became so wild and powerful that I could see almost anything I thought of right in front of me. When I closed my eyes, all I could see was beautiful colours, and even when I opened them, the colours would still be there. When I looked up to the sky... My mind felt at ease as the happiness took over and all I could think about was how great my life would be if I could just stay this high forever. All I wanted to do was escape the guilt I felt from being so depressed, which by now had reached such a severe extreme that I felt I had no other option than to continue taking drugs. Um, so the drugs gave me some kind of comfort and a hope of like, it, it will be okay, I can just be out of reality. I always thought of it as... If you have an argument with someone, you leave the room to escape for a minute. And if you can't deal with your life and reality, then you take drugs to escape reality. And you don't have to deal with any of it. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Harry's. 
Having such a scratchy face, I'm always delighted to get a new Harry's set. There's a foaming gel, hydrating night lotion, and the razor with the weighted handle really gets the job done. The trimmer blade makes it so easy to get into those tricky places to reach. The shave gel offers effective lubrication and just comes off like butter. It's such a smooth shave. It shaves fast, efficiently, no discomfort, and it is so smooth by the end. The hydrating night lotion is light and non-greasy. Harry's is doing a zero pounds trial. Start shaving with the products, just pay for delivery. Save every time. Save on all your shaving products without sacrificing quality. You're in control. You can modify or cancel your plan from the account page. Make sure to support our podcast and start your own skincare journey by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, and have your trial set delivered to your door. That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. We must have passed out because it was dark when we went to sleep, but it was like daylight when we woke up in a field in our clothes, um, in wet clothes because it had been raining. We woke up by the rain. We were still high as we walked back to Dee's house, at which point I phoned mum to see if she could pick me up. I knew I couldn't walk home without being stopped by the police in the state I was in, but needed to go home so that I could shower, change clothes and sleep. So that I could shower, change my clothes and sleep. So I'd stay out for days and days and days and then just go home, shove some food down my throat, shower, change my clothes and go back out again. And it would be an argument that entire time. Um, I felt bad for lying... Sorry, I was with Dee as I'd kept my secret about staying with friends instead of her. So I asked to be picked up from the park a little further down the road from Dee's. I felt bad for lying to mum and dad about giving up Dee's friendship after what she had done, but there was no way I could give up my only way of getting hold of drugs. When mum picked me up, I tried to squint my eyes so that they would appear not so big from all the drugs, but she wasn't stupid and knew I'd taken something. So I was like, I'd try and squint my eyes or like pretend to look drunk, <laughs> but you just end up looking like this. <laughs> Um, (laughs) sorry what was Dee's mum like did she know Dee was on drugs so they didn't mind like weed and alcohol but they didn't want us on anything harder and if they knew she seems very laid back very laid back but if we'd taken something it was like she wouldn't actively let us but um, unless we looked off our face we could go around there and chill there like she just wouldn't say anything but we couldn't like get it out and do it there or anything like that um and if I was like on the peak of a rush, I'd just taken an upper and was like buzzing and chatting crap and eyes wide, we couldn't go around there. But we could go out at silly o'clock in the night in the morning, and no one would say anything if we did sneak out. Um, so, mom didn't question me about it, as it only led to arguments because this happened so often now. But I could tell from her eyes that she was angry and upset. Nights like the previous ones seemed to happen more and more often over the next few months, so I continued to take drugs and drink heavily every time I was with Dee. I would lie to Mum if she gave me a lift by asking to be dropped off at the park, by which I'd walk straight from which I'd walk straight to Dee's house. It was hard to hide how I really felt about her as there was no trust left within our friendship at all, but I kept my mouth shut so that I could use her like I'd planned. When I was high this proved extremely difficult as I was brutally honest when intoxicated but I knew how important it was that I stayed friends with her as long as the drugs were my only escape from my own mind. So I eventually did end up getting other dealers' numbers and not having to go through her. But 
um, I think I was a bit, not in love in a sexual way, but I love her. Attachment, isn't there? Definitely, yeah. I do think she was the first person that wasn't blood, like that was, I suppose, partner that I loved. There was no sex there, nothing like that. But even you as bonded an adult, over drugs. Yeah, we've been through a lot, and I loved her like a sister, or just I, I was, I did love her like a sister, and. We were sort of always taught if you love family, it doesn't matter what they do, you're still family. So I kind of carried that into friendships. But then obviously people can really hurt you and you don't care because you still would rather have them in your life. Um, my yacht worker from the youth offending team had arranged a doctor's appointment at the request of mum and dad to provide me with counselling therapy for my depression. They wanted to talk about the sexual abuse, but I was not ready for that. So I refused counselling altogether and opted for drug treatment instead. They put me on Prozac and though it began to have an effect after a few weeks, the first week was nothing but severe side effects. So when a fifth, when you try Prozac with a still child's developing brain, um, it causes side effects of like actively suicidal. It makes you, it, yeah, side effect of the antidepressant that you take for being suicidal causes suicide attempts, causes you to feel about it, nothing but suicidal all day, every day. I was 15 still. Um they put me on Prozac and though it began to have an effect, um, yeah, it just started getting bad. Like I'd been arguing with dad after coming home from D's and sleeping all day as he knew I was taking drugs. So he grounded me and stopped me seeing all of my friends from the estate. He knew the side effects of Prozac were causing me nausea and vomiting and, and body aches. But he was still aggressively harsh to me and demanded that I dig holes in the garden all day as a punishment like on a fat come down and on Prozac. <laughs> um, I physically couldn't do it. And after digging for almost an hour, I was vomiting and crying. I threw down the shovel and told him to fuck off. He shouted at me and said no daughter of his was going to sit around the house doing nothing all day, but he couldn't seem to understand that I was depressed and physically exhausted from the side effects of Prozac, so it couldn't work. I told him I was too young to work anyway and that if mum hadn't signed the papers at school I'd be attending some form of education therefore it was not my fault and I had nothing to do and it didn't matter how often I drank or, and if I slept all day because I had no reason to get up anyway dad shouted up the stairs as I ran to my room still feeling sick and drowsy I grabbed my runaway bag which I'd kept pre-packed since I ran away so often now before making my way downstairs in tears ready to leave dad shouted with pure hatred in his eyes so you're just gonna fuck off like you always do then you're a stupid child, can't deal with anything like an adult. I ran out the front door, shouting and swearing back at him as I began the four mile walk to as I began the four mile walk to Dee's house. I walked into a shop down the road, picked up a crate of beer and threw a tenner on the counter. I knew I wouldn't get served, as the shop owner knew I was well underage, so I snapped at him as I walked out. There's more than enough money there. I've had a fucking shit day and I'm taking these, so don't even think about chasing me. Keep the change. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he looked scared, which is what I wanted. So the last thing I needed was a stupid shop owner starting a fight. You're proper terrorising the neighbourhood <laughs> now. <Wow>. Yeah. <laughs> um, so although he knew I was underage, he didn't call the police because I'd left more than enough money to pay for the beers. <laughs> um, I, I, I downed the first can in one go before opening the second and lighting a cigarette. I stared blankly ahead as I pulled my hood down over my face, covering the mess I'd made by crying. A police car pulled up and tried to stop me for drinking, but I managed to run away fast enough to reach an alleyway and hop over a fence, at which point they decided I was not worth the chase. 
I then stuck behind back roads as much as I could for the rest of the walk to Dee's house, where I felt safe as I was away from police and close to drugs. Her mum asked if I was okay or needed a place to stay as I told her I'd been kicked out again, but before explaining her how my dad had treated me whilst I was feeling sick from taking Prozac, she had taken other antidepressants in the past and knew exactly what it felt like to be nauseated as a side effect, so she can so she completely sympathized with me and agreed it was best I stayed there for a few nights I remember sort of telling the parents like yeah he's making me dig fucking holes in the garden like like what that's child abuse like obviously they knew I was being a shit as well but what were you digging holes for as punishment just a hole in like hardened soil that's not been touched for years that's got concrete in it you can't dig through it like convict labor yeah (laughs) dig holes yeah just digging a hole and then fill it back in and dig a different hole somewhere else in the fucking garden (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> what we do to prisoners? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Of course, like planting flowers or something, but no. <laughs> just a hole. Nothing constructive. Like, um... <laughs> you like digging holes as a kid? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Did he have a different punishment for you then? Yeah, Filling like, holes. <laughs> Housework, yeah. My sister used to kick off sometimes. Do you mind if I... One time, um, we were about this age, and I think I'd been kicked out, so I was not at school and I was at home, and either on drugs or on a come down at mum and dad's. And my twin had... She took alcohols at school, and she drank a whole bottle of vodka, like a litre of vodka at school, and was on the toilet, sat on the floor crying. (laughs) Like, fuck off everyone, like, having a, just a drunk, a bad time, but, like, it was quite funny to watch as well. And her friends had found her in the toilets and, the te- and told her teacher, because she was sitting in, like, a puddle of piss that leaked from the other toilets, crying with this bottle of vodka, just drinking it neat. I'm sorry, it was, like, splashes. <laughs> Wait, it used to flood. Okay, you're next to the puddle. I remember school <laughs> toilets stinking. Yeah. Mm, um, yeah. And the teacher came in. And one of these teachers we're actually really good friends with now. We've continued to stay friends with, but he obviously he's a bloke. So he was like, okay, I'm going to go out and find the other teacher. Should we do this again? I'll come in in a minute and we'll do this over again. So like when he went out and got the other teacher, she came in and he acted like, oh no, what's happened? Like he's not just been in there talking to her. Um. So, yeah, she'd been drinking and I think she stormed off past them and they were with our head of year who was just horrible. He didn't have kids of their own, out of his own, and he was just horrible and he was like a main reason that I got kicked out of that school. Properly. I was a little shit, but he had it in for me from day one. He used to be horrible to me. Like, I remember coming in crying because I'd been up all night because I, I used to stay up all night till five in the morning because I didn't want the next day to come. So any minute of time I would just cherish because it's not the next day yet. Um, and I remember just crying and he was like, he goes to me and I wasn't even in a meeting with him. I was just walking upstairs and he was coming up from downstairs and he's, he's oh, you can stop crying too. You look, you look, ugly, you, know, you look so ugly like that. Wipe that crap off your face. Like, and stop crying too. You look so ugly. I don't care that you're crying. <laughs> it's like, fuck off. You look ugly when you're not crying. So <laughs> should have said that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was him and. Yeah, Miss Hall, we used to call her. I like her name rhymed with it. I'm not going to say what it is. But yeah, Miss Hall and our head of year followed her and she stormed off. And apparently all the kids were like staring out the windows because she said, oh my God, is that 
thingy and then like with our first and second name like oh my god is that one of the twins yeah <laughs> fuck off leave me alone i'm going to bed and then she goes home <laughs> and like um they followed her all the way home on this walk and obviously throughout the car park Listen, on... they just wanted to definitely got some home safe like that's good of them i think they followed her all the way home and she got home and our nan was babysitting us so like nan's like you stink like a fucking old alcoholic <laughs> she's gone to bed <laughs> so my sister's gone up the stairs and she's like i'm going to boxing i was like mate you're not going anywhere like go to bed and the teachers had followed her but i'd opened the door and the teachers had seen me and it was one of the ones that had i blamed for kicking me out even my parents didn't like this one like he obviously was he was a shit one and um he saw the state of me. I'd lost loads of weight by this point and looked like I was on drugs. Um, and obviously it's middle of school day and I'm not at school. So that was fun. I think I told him to fuck off. <laughs> um, but yeah, couldn't get any like court punishment. I think they try to ground her once, but we'd just be really annoying until they give up on the grounding and just let us go out, like asking, trying to include them on loads of stuff. Like, Mom, what's this? Can you help me with this? Oh, Mom, why does the sky is this colour? Like, um, I used to just climb out the bedroom window. <laughs> Ours was on the third floor. So, I mean, mm. I climb out and slide onto the garage roof. I used to shimmy down really the drain pipe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't that um, fearless, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, my mum had to start locking windows. <laughs> in the house so I couldn't get out oh, no. yeah. so at this point I'd stayed at D's for a few few days um, I hadn't called mum and dad and I was off school at this point and she was at naughty school so I think she stayed off with me but eventually got a, I got a phone call from mum and dad who were asking me to come home they didn't seem angry but they weren't happy by any means and whenever they acted overly calm it always seemed like it was because they'd run out of emotions to feel um or like it was the calm before the storm. It, I must have drained them with all my anger from my depression, but it was something I couldn't stop and could only keep running from in the hope that one day I'd run away from it. Mum and Dad had called me to try and come home, and I think they'd sometimes tell me that my twin was upset to try and get me to come home, and it was all this sort of blackmailing and lying that would, manipulating really, that would make me not trust them even more. And... They knew that if my twin was upset or anything was going wrong with her, that I'd go home. So, um, I think I stayed out, but I, I'd came home eventually, but I'd stay out for as many days as I could. Um, I had a curfew because of the referral order, I think. Um, so can I just read this and then start yeah, Cause perfect. I'm rambling and it's not going anywhere. Um, and I don't want to just sit and read through the whole book cause it's, too long this is the five days in police custody can i yeah through this bit okay a few weeks went, um i think I'd, a few weeks and months went by and i'd stay out for a few days go home for, for a day argue the whole time and then go back out and i'd always say i was staying at Dee's house even asked these parents if i could stay so that they'd tell my mum that i was staying there and then i'd fuck off and stay out where would you um, stay? On the street, in the parks, um, woods, just stay out. <laughs> um, 
A few weeks went by with the same arguments day in, day out. I'd stormed out of the house on curfew for drinking, so it wasn't long before the police came looking for me. They would knock at my door after seven every night. Um, so this we got barred from this other estate that we used to hang out from. I got like a 48-hour ban from the police. So they put me on a curfew because of that. But every night for this whole week, they'd only came once to check that we were home. Um, I think my twin... Sorry, can we go back? How did you get banned from an estate, (laughs) man? Um, (laughs) I think I just... (sighs) Asbo. (laughs) Yeah, Asbo child. So yeah, how on earth did you get banned from a housing estate? (laughs) So I think as the weeks went by after everything with the arson, the court case was over, but I still couldn't deal with being sober so there was like two groups of friends I'd hang out with one was with D and everyone on that estate and then the other one was a group of friends who I'd grown up with from kids on the estate closer to my home because they live four miles away from me everyone on D's estate so I was at this estate close to home and we'd just been drinking and kicking off and just being little sods um (laughs) I think I was I was 15 and I think my younger friend was 13 or 14 and I'd stayed out all night and um, trying to think which order everything is. So there was one night where we were drunk, um, causing a bit of a fuss, like shouting at the police. I think my friend had moonied out of the police van and he was like 13. I mean, full on Paul cheek parts, everything. <laughs> um, so he got arrested and then I was being walked back to their van drunk Um but like as we got closer, they hadn't cuffed me because I was fairly calm by this point, and there was two women officers either side of me, and they just had a light light hold of my shirt, and I like fancied my chances because I'm quite tall, and they were both well under five foot. So I was like, "Come on, I got almost to the van, I just legged it, gone down this hill, pissed up, falling everywhere." <laughs> I'm like, I'm surprised I didn't end up rolling down the hill, and I was, but there was roadworks at the bottom, and I was so drunk that I was, couldn't decide which way to go, left or right. So, um, like by the time I've even not even decided, I'm still running almost in this fence, and this the male coppers like grabbed me from behind and thrown me up against this fence. I think it was a, it was a fence or a wall about six foot high. And because I was running when he threw me against the fence, I physically like went up off the ground, like so I flew <laughs> into this fence and then gone cra- come crashing down onto the floor. Um, he's like pinned me down, arms behind my back. I think I had an asthma attack, so. He didn't put the cuffs on too tight. Was that a genuine aspirant? Yeah, genuine. <laughs> um, I think I was just fat and unfit from all the alcohol and everything else. So um, he just took me back to the police car, but because I hadn't really done anything that bad, they took me home. But um, that's where I got a 48-hour ban, but not a curfew yet. So I got a 48-hour ban. That comes in in a little bit. <laughs> um, 48-hour ban from that estate next day didn't care went straight back out there and my mum was like you're not going on that estate are you I was like no no promise went out <laughs> met my friends who live up there and police drove past saw me so I was like, fuck ran um and then over the next few hours of that night um I think I'd um I'd had the police out, but I'd like run out in the road, like here I am, and then leg it down an alleyway. <laughs> I'd like stay out in the road long enough for them to get out of the car, and then I'd just leg it, and then they'd not find me. I did that at least twice. <laughs> um, then later in the night, I was at my friend's house hiding out, and my parents didn't know where I was by this point. 
and his mum was deaf so we could play music really loud unless like as long as she couldn't feel the vibrations in the floor <laughs> and it's about two three in the morning by this point and police have been looking for me for hours and I didn't know at the time but his mum dobbed me in because she didn't want to get in trouble either oh no so look out the window we hear banging on the door let us in now like banging on the door but it was a big thick steel metal door downstairs because it was a block of flats so they couldn't get through that fucking door <laughs> <laughs> and they were banging on it for like half an hour and we're like shit what do we do we're trapped and they're on a first floor so it's not like I, I didn't think I could just jump out the window but um we went up to the window with like balaclavas on and covering our face like she's not here go away and they're like we know that's you Nita come down now <laughs> um and there was like three or four vehicles there was one van two cars and like a people carrier all for you yeah right and <laughs> they must have had a bigger budget then <laughs> um, <laughs> and they were banging on the doors for about half an hour and I still wouldn't we wouldn't let them in so it took them half an hour until eventually a neighbor let them in and buzzed them up and for some reason none of them waited downstairs so every single I think about 12 of them ran upstairs and I waited until I'd heard them come into the door and then I ran out jumped out the window slid down the porch roof and then jumped onto the gardens bit which was outside so they're on the first floor slid down the little porch roof (laughs) legged it and I was thinking I need to hide somewhere because I'm shit running (laughs) um so I hid um, behind the fence there was in like the washing line areas of the gardens of the flats and um, I just crouched down like covering my face and a police officer's come running out and he's shone his torch all the way past me straight past me and then back on me so like running running again um, didn't get very far and then I think I got taken to the station and got the curfew so I think kicking off at the station but I was only kept in for a day at that point and um the couple of days after that i'm on a curfew but not on tag but on a curfew and so far for like two or three days in a row the police had just come to check that i was in after 7 p.m and then they didn't come back so i'd go back out i started going back out after they checked that i was in <laughs> um and i've gone back out still banned from that estate at this point and i went to that estate after my curfew <laughs> but they came back a second time to check so I'm thinking, oh shit, like, um, because they'd seen me, I think, on the estate. But um, we kept them on a few police chases, just foot chases like the days before, but they hadn't caught me. And I was eventually walking home about 9 or 10 p.m. And I'd left the estate by this point. So the police pulled up beside me and I thought I'll play it cool and be calm because I thought, well, I'm nowhere near the estate. And it's, I might have been even in time for my curfew, maybe if it was seven or eight o'clock. Because I'd been out for quite a while that day. Like, I'd gone out early. So I thought, well, I've done nothing wrong. I'm not on that estate now. So I'll sit and talk to the police officers all nicely. And then I'll go home, like, (laughs) as if. (laughs) Um, So this massive bloke, Coffers, got out the car. Um, Yeah, he's like, Nita, come here. I want a word with you. But he's grabbed my arm. So as soon as he's grabbed my arm, started getting his cuffs. I'm arresting you for breaching a bail. I've (laughs) pulled away and um tried to run but I couldn't he was too strong so he's got me on the floor and I remember being on the floor and just holding my arms and like yeah fuck off you ain't having my arms <laughs> and then he's on top of me on my back and I pushed up with like all my strength and I could feel his balls on my back it was disgusting like that and like with my legs I was trying to buck trying to buck him off over the like over the front over my shoulders <laughs> um so like using judo and then I grabbed his arm under my armpit trying to roll him into like a judo thing so I rolled him like onto his back Tom and, and Nagy. 
<laughs> yeah, he shit himself because I had his arm, so he's only got one arm to be fucking fucking front of. And that Jesus. arm had the cuffs in it. <laughs> and the policewoman's jumped in at that point as well. And then I was almost, almost out of his grip. And the other police van turned up with, I think, about six. There was about eight of them all together this time. And they've all jumped on top of me. Um, I had, there was like one on, two on each arm because I think another time before I'd been literally held like this. And I just didn't put my arms down. It took two of them on each side 20 minutes to get my arms down. I only put them down because I got bored. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think I was still doing a lot of weights at the time, weightlifting. Um, and obviously with the judo, you never really forget that it becomes like a second in- natural instinct. <laughs> Did they have you down like as dangerous because of your strength because of your judo? <laughs> They always had men, they always, they wouldn't send my female officers to me because then I'd just run and riot. Wow. <laughs> um, um, so that, I think it was that time. There was another time where they'd arrested me and I ended up really drunk and they'd found me like lying in a ditch in someone's back garden with like a knife in my shoe. And they'd asked me, what's that for? And I've said, it's protection from you cunts. Like I wasn't ever going to hurt someone. That's what I've said to him apparently. Um, <laughs> so I can't remember if that was before or after this, but either way, they arrested me, took me to the station and my brother was walking home from the same estate whilst I'm held down on the floor out on the street while these officers, and he's only 13 or 14, I think he was 13, and he's going, come on, is this really necessary to the officers? Like, talking to them like as if he's the adult and they're the kid. And one of them's got their baton out and was like, get away from here now, like, you're going to get like arrested. And I was going, can you take my iPod, like, take all my shit because I don't want any of it getting lost trying to plan. I'm like, oh, can we not go to this town station? Can we go to this one? I much prefer the rooms in that one. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> just, oh, God. Um, they got me into the van. I think I was um, whacking my head on the pavement deliberately, trying to knock myself out, just kicking off. So they'd have literally a hand on my neck like that, pinning me down as well as, like, tied my legs together into, like, here, 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 and then hands cuffed behind my back and a strap across my waist. Like, I didn't even know they did those restraints in this country. Um, But it's really uncomfortable to be in those for very long. So I also asked my brother if he could tell mum and dad that I'd been arrested. That was sorry, like, before they find out through the police because I thought they'd be way less pissed off. (laughs) Um, Was that the case? No, uh, a little bit. They're like, fuck's sake. Like, why have you gone on that estate? I wasn't. I've done nothing wrong. I wasn't even on that estate when they arrested me. Um, so got to the police station and I think I was like covered in bruises from fighting with them and I was still shouting and bawling and kicking off all the way into the cells so they didn't book me in they just put me straight in the cell still tied up and I think they have to release them after 20 minutes of the chest restraints because it goes over your chest and it absolutely compromises your breathing so they took they you know they do that thing where they shove you in the cell, hold you down, cut take the restraints off, pin you down, and then all leg out the cell, and you get about two three seconds to get up and try and run. <laughs> You'll know that one. <laughs> um, so bored shitless, feeling a bit sorry for myself, and like the drugs, uh, the drinking stuff wearing off, and um, I hadn't. I when you put metal in your bars the metal detector shows up and they think it's just the bra. So I'd keep lighters and all sorts in my bra and it didn't got managed into the cell. <laughs> so, oh, so I was um, in the cell and I'd, I'd kept a self-harming blade in there and I pulled it out and just, yeah, started like, ha ha, fuck you kind of thing to the cameras, like smeared a bit of a blood protest, smearing blood on the wall and shit. Um, wow. A bit psycho. 
but they've obviously I think I've smeared blood on the wall did that showed them the thing on the camera like ha <laughs> um and then um I think I tried like choking myself with a blanket but like just for attention from them like I don't don't think you can kill yourself with that <laughs> um so they've come running back in um grabbed all that off me pinned me down I don't think they stripped my clothes off yet they might have done at that point um but I was just kicking off so much no they didn't strip my clothes off that was later um just kept kicking off so they put the restraints back on and I'm like hogtied pretty much laying on the floor on my front hogtied (laughs) so I'm like laying on my front hogtied basically with their chest abs and leg restraints and cuff behind my back in the cell on the floor on concrete and um I think still kicking off (sighs) my arm was still bleeding and uh, they'd come in every 20 minutes and check on the little window slidey thing they have on the cell doors. And so they didn't get your medical help? Oh, no. <laughs> what medical help? <laughs> um, I think they were like, oh, you, have you calmed down now? Like, we want those off just as much as you do. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm calm. I'm sorry. Like, acting calm just to get them off. So I bullshit and said I needed the toilet because I wasn't the toilet in my cell and I just wanted to walk. I was bored. But I thought, like, there's no point kicking it off. I'm not going to go anywhere. Um, until I saw a door opening at the end of a corridor that had, it went out to the main reception, which obviously goes to outside. So I saw it, fancied my chances, <laughs> legged it. And they pressed the fucking buzzer on the on the wall. Um, like I didn't even know some of these doors were rooms. I thought some of them were cupboards and there's just officers running out of every single thing. It's not Some not even in uniform. Like, they've run out of interviews, mid-interview to come and jump on me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's about 12 of them I guess on me eight, um, at least 8 of them were male one of them's kicked me in the head and then stood on my temple here on that part of my head because it induces so much pain that you can't breathe and you just freeze um, they'd whack, got me to the floor with batons and um, tased me at one point I can't remember if that was before I went into the police station or whilst we were in there but I'd been tased as well what was that like? and then tied um, I Quite like the adrenaline, to be honest. But um, well, <laughs> <laughs> my mate's party uh, trick painful. was just let, to let yeah. people tase him. He loved it. Like he's getting his toes tickled. <laughs> no, I was, it was something else getting tickled. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> we thought we were wild. <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, getting tased. Yeah, it. So it was the batons that time. In um, load them on me and tied me up again. Um, oh, no, didn't tie me up. Sorry, they they pin- took all my clothes off me, um, apart from my um, knickers. And it was eight. They they pin tied me up, took me to the room, took the restraints off, and then one bloke, male officer, stood at the door whilst eight male officers stripped all my clothes off forcefully. Like I wasn't letting them do that. That's not on. And it took them like half an hour and I was screaming the whole fucking time. And then they put a plastic bag over my head. It it wasn't a spit bag. I've seen those. It wasn't that. It was a plastic fucking carrier bag. I couldn't breathe. And like one of them was laughing because they could hear just the terror in my voice. And yeah, stripped all my clothes off, stripped me naked. And then um, put the restraints on again, but naked and... um, it cut into my sides like I had bruising on from how tight they were. Bruises all on my wrists, swollen knuckle bruises. Um, 
black eye and then a bruise on my temple where they'd stood up in boots like one of its one of the blokes male officers had stood on my temple and every so often every like hour or two they'd take the restraints off I'd kick off again have a fight with all of them and then get them put back on a couple hours later blag a day out whether it was hospital trip or medical to see medical or um I need the toilet or just some bullshit I think I flooded my cell at one point how? But they put me in a cell with taps in it, with a tap on the toilet, and I um, clogged up the tap and put clogged up the sink and put the tap on and just left it running and sat up on on the windowsill bit, and like flooded the whole floor about this deep. And um, um they didn't let me out the next day because I just that, I, that continued for about two days, honestly. So the first two nights they just kept me in there. I think I was only originally in for drunken disorderly and breaching my bail conditions, but they ended up keeping me in for five days. And the was first- it for police assault? No, I think that was added to it, but it was, they were like out of fear for your own safety. So it was the section as well, a mental health section, but they kept me in a padded police cell and like no mental health help. No one even came to ask if I was suicidal. Like, How old are you at this point? 15. Holy shit. <laughs> um, this is also about the time that the London riots were going on in 2011. Um, so I think my mum came in on the fourth day and they still wouldn't let me out and my mum and family, I didn't find out until after this, like there's so much they cared, but I don't think I was in the right place at the time. They'd all handwritten me a letter each to just say, because they knew I was in a room where I'd have to be there and read it. I couldn't just fuck off. So they'd all written me a letter and the police never gave them to me when it was probably good they didn't. But everyone else, like my mum, my dad's and my brothers and sisters, all their letters were like, look, we love you and we just want the old you back. You need to stop doing all this stupid shit, but um, we love you, please come home. But my little brother... <laughs> He was only 11 at the time, so his his letter that he wrote was just like, what are you being stupid for? Stop being a dickhead. <laughs> um, like, mum and dad are well pissed off. <laughs> You're in so much trouble. <laughs> I think my mum kept it. It's funny. But um, so my mum had come in and she asked me, did you get the letters? What, you got a box? So on our 21st birthdays, my mum's kept all paperwork and school stuff and just fun and toys and just loads of memory stuff. Memory from, box. Yeah, from being a baby all the way up to 21. And she gives us it all for our 21st birthdays, all five of us. And she kept that in there. And then a police letter that was like, on July, whatever date it was, Nita will, apo- Nita will appear in court for the following offences. And I swear to God, this list was about this long with about 20 odd offences. I think I only got done for 13 of them in the end. That beats my memory box. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd done all of them. Like. Wow. Um, but yeah, mum came in to visit me and it was at a police station quite far away from home. So she'd have to drive about an hour to get me. And she'd came, I think, with the intention of picking me up. But I ended up, just overwhelmed with emotion it was really horrible I had to see her in like a cage ring which you don't really have in this country most of the cells are rooms and it was like a cage so they could, the police stay the, the it was like a cage built so that the, the police officers at the custody station at the station at the reception bit I guess could still see through to us and hear our conversations and <clears throat> um yeah mum got obviously a bit upset I got a bit upset and she asked if we'd seen the letters and I think she was upset at the state of me because I was just covered in bruises and I had no clean clothes. So I had like a men's prison kind of, I think it was like a tank top, like a vest, I suppose, and um, trackies on and I stunk. <laughs> um, and I'd washed my hair with no shampoo or anything, just water. So I just looked a complete mess. 
and yeah my mum's quite upset at the state of me and she asked did I get the letters and I said no and then I was pissed off that the police hadn't given them to me so I was like you fucking wankers you I'm gonna fucking get you so I've walked out of the police cell I suppose the room cell that I was in with my mum and I've walked out and started kicking off trying to hit the custody sergeant because I thought I knew it was them like trying to dive over the custody death to whack him so um They've pressed the red buzzer again, but in front of my mum and they've all jumped out on me and I was kicking off and I ran and the position I was stood, sorry, the position I was in, like standing up is the position they pinned me down on the floor. Like that's how quick they all got me down, but it was in front of my mum and I couldn't move my head and there was like all of them on my arms, my legs, my body, but because I was like pinned down on my side almost, um, there was like hands everywhere on my hip and everywhere Um, and I just cried and they picked me up dragged me back to my cell I don't think they tied me up because they thought it would be more traumatic for my mum but I just cried saying I'm sorry mum and she was just crying and then had to go um so they had to walk her out so that was horrible and I felt really guilty but um the next day finally went to court and um mum was there finally got picked up by them lot and I think at court they just added everything I'd done they just added me more months onto my referral order so with more free fun stuff to do so I wasn't that fast (laughs) but like when we got into the courtroom the judge was like she saw the state of me I think I was in shorts and t-shirt or the trackies that had been cut into shorts and I was just covered head to toe in bruises everything swollen you couldn't even recognize me and she said like what have you done to her why is she covered in bruises why why does she look like that because just the bruises were so severe and especially two of the police officers kind of one of them kind of laughed the ones in the courtroom when she said that and um because you're allowed to use reasonable force but that's down to interpretation and everyone's individual idea of what that is and when I was sort of kicked in the head and then stood on the head I was already tied up and restrained like I couldn't move a muscle and my head was restrained as well so there was no reason for them to kick me in the fucking head and then stand on my temple. But they, she's like, oh, why does she look like that? I want to see the camera footage now. And they said, oh, sorry, it's it didn't work. It's malfunctioned. Deleted that whole five days I was in there. Mm, conveniently. Um, I was being a shit. I deserved it probably. But I don't, looking, I wouldn't say any other kid deserves that. Um, But I finally got allowed to go. I just said, like, whatever, like, yes, sir, no, sir, whatever, to get able to go home. And in the car, we put the radio on and it said, oh, more riots broke out today. London looting. I was like, what? I want to go looting. Like, <laughs> I was like, mom, did they loot in JD? Like, <laughs> She's like, no, that's why they kept you in there. And we sort of had a laugh and a joke and it was fun. <laughs> Just making a joke of it. I think that's how we get through a lot in our family. Just making jokes of it. Like even down to like the sexual abuse, <laughs> made some like nasty jokes about it. Um, I think... Because the referral order got extended for so long after that, um, I ended up going on a prison counselling course to meet up with these women who'd been, um, who were in prison on really high charges. I think all but two were in for murder, and the one that wasn't, the ones that weren't murder were like armed robbery and kidnap and stuff. So you just don't expect that from women that seem so normal and young and like everything going for them. Read, I'm going to read from my notes. Yeah, go for it. The book. Go for it. So we're coming up to 16, or have we still got more 15? Just coming up to stories? 16, not very much wow. left. Mind blown, is that you like the female Charles Bronson at 15 <laughs> years old? 
Are you blown away? Yeah, these stories now are, are going to blow us away even more because I've, I've read this bit. <laughs> yeah, these are just the side stories. <laughs> um, yeah, just behind you. I think this sounds so crazy, but one of the main reasons I was so upset about being pinned down and stripped naked, obviously it massively reminded me of the abuse, especially male hands, big strong men that are stronger than me. Did but, they know you'd been abused? Yeah, they yeah they all knew at this point because it was on my records with the arson and stuff. Um, and even my youth offending team worker, she was like, I was telling her the story of what had happened, and she's like, "But I don't understand. Why were you naked? Why did they take your clothes off? I don't understand." And I was like, "I, I don't know." She's like, "Did they strip search you?" I was like, "No, they just took all my clothes off." Did they touch you inappropriately? I mean, yeah, while well, they were pinning me down, but it wasn't like a nothing sexual. But they definitely touched me. Like, you don't pin someone down by the boob. <laughs> oh, boob? Yeah, boob grab, a bit of crutch grabbing. You know, you don't pin, have to pin somebody down by that. But, yeah, hands everywhere. <laughs> um, sounds gross. They didn't go inside anywhere, but they were held the outside everywhere. So I guess, yeah, was touched inappropriately. <laughs> um, I was really upset because... I was worried that they all thought I was fat and and like that was, I was embarrassed about being fat and that was like... That was your worry. <laughs> yeah, of all that. <laughs> it's like this one time she like broke her arm and she was like, I can't, I can't go my hair looks awful. Sort out my hair, I need to sort out my hair first. Like, I, I did. See me. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I've forgotten about that. <laughs> oh. Um... Oh, I remember getting out of the shower and we'd got home and mum's like, you look like the kid off the fucking NSPCC advert, off the child abuse advert, with, where they're just ridiculous, like covered, the, it's an actor obviously covered in like ridiculously dramatised um, bruises. <laughs> like, um, yeah, so that was hard them seeing me like that. Um, just a chapter from back being in there, it says... I'd written, I was furious with the police for not letting me go home, but looking back now, I know I would have attempted suicide if I'd been released feeling the way I did. Um, I was taken to hospital for an x-ray of both my hands since my knuckles were swollen, but I felt embarrassed walking around the hospital in cuffs because everyone who looked at me must have thought I was a serious criminal. A stranger in the waiting room cheered me up slightly as he saw me attempt to run off after slipping out of my handcuffs, shouting, go on, girl, before offering me a cigarette as the police grabbed my arms and brought me back into hospital. <laughs> so I think we're a bit past that. I'm just going to think skip. because you were coming off drugs, you reacted like that? That and the fact, oh, I would have been cold turkey of the Prozac as well because they didn't give me any of that in there. Um, and my mental state, obviously, I was really suffering and I didn't care. But um, I think I used to always kick off with the police at that age anyway. Like after I'd been arrested, I think, oh, fuck it. I've been nicked. I might as well have a laugh now. <laughs> so I'm going to make them work for their money. Like, <laughs> um, But even to this day now, I can't be locked in a room. Like even with a door being shut, it's taken me until the last sort of six months to be able to be in a room with the door shut. And that's been quite hard. And I've got PTSD if I hear shouting or like the click of um, locks, like a door locking. It just takes me back there and it's, I've suffered a lot with PTSD since everything stopped. I think Sean suffers with that lock noise. Do you? Well, I had flashbacks and stuff um, when I first got out, but it's all, it's all gone down a lot now. Yeah. 
I think it does get better with time. Yeah. Um, I just try and like introduce more positive things into my life. So then the mental health and all that crazy shit that was the massive part of your life becomes the smallest part of your life as you go on and just build all these different positive things into your life. And then when you do have flashbacks, you think it's horrible at the time, but then you think, oh, but that's okay now. I've got all this going on. So we do get better. <laughs> um, God. Um, so as part of the, sorry, as part of the referral order, I got to go on this prison course with the women that were all murderers and stuff. And, um, just some of their stories, I'm obviously not going to be able to read any because I wouldn't know any of them to be able to give any kind of permission, but they just had, they'd been through all sorts and all sexually abused, every single one of them. And, um, I think one of them had been like the mum used to look the mum and the younger siblings in a in a room to protect them and leave this daughter out to get raped by the boyfriend. And Sorry. she ended up killing someone and she's one of the people in prison on the course. So her mum used to leave her out to get raped? Yeah, to save the other kids and the mum herself. Jesus Christ. It's just awful. Disgusting. And that girl was serving a life, life sentence for a, rape, a murder of a rapist. Um, just with her fist, she time she just beat the shit out of him and go oh, on, girl, sorry, no, that's awful. But um Yeah. Um so I'd met all these people, um What about the one you told me about earlier? So I might just read this, but there's no names or anything in it. So that's fine. So only her mother who had an this woman the second woman, her mother had a abusive boyfriend who she eventually chose over her daughter. Um I think he raped her as well. So at only six years of age, she was raped at four or five. At only six years of age, um, we call her Katie. That's just a fake name. Katie went to live with her father who never showed her any love. She started taking drugs when she was nine and at 14 year old painted her in, and 14 years old painted her entire bedroom black. Her dad went ballistic and when she came out as transgender less than a week later, he put her into care. So she was born female, wanted to be male. So she ran away to London. She then met a drug dealer who sold her into sex trafficking as a female, I think, before kidnapping her age 16 and taking her to his home country of Barbados. He beat her in front of his family who didn't speak any English, then raped her at gunpoint before forcing her to keep her first baby. She was only 16 at this time. She was eventually allowed back to the UK but forced to live with him, being abused on a daily basis while she tried best to bring up her son. She gave birth to a second child three years later who sadly got, died of cancer aged just five. The drug dealer, who was now her husband, had been beating her and threatening her with a knife when a neighbour parked outside her house. She had nothing left, nothing of her own except that small parking space outside her house, which was like the only thing she could call hers. Um, when the neighbour refused to move his car, she ran inside and picked up the knife that the boyfriend had now put down. Without warning, she stabbed him in the heart and let out a huge scream whilst mentally releasing all the pain she'd built up inside her. She didn't want to take an innocent person's life, but she knew it was him or her. Or that's how she felt in that moment. She felt she had no other way to release the pain she'd suffered as a result of the abuse. And I think obviously with me and the arson, that felt like a release. So I did understand that. Oops. So I did understand that. After being convicted and locked up for murder, she was forced to put her son into care. He eventually committed suicide, aged 13, by hanging himself on a shower curtain in a foster home. Bloody hell. Katie was not allowed to attend his funeral and now lives with the guilt of her son's death, which obviously hurt her more because she felt she'd left him there and by her actions. Um, and I think the boyfriend was still allowed in the kid's life. 
the yes. the dad, the abusive one who told her at gunpoint and raped her at gunpoint. Um, it seemed they all had terrible lives, full of abuse and neglect. One inmate had been raped. Sorry, one prisoner had been raped by her stepfather, whilst her mother protected her sisters in a separate room, allowing her to be raped and beaten from the age of five. Um, some of them had been gang raped and most of them had been abused and it seemed the only real difference between us was that my parents were not at fault for my abuse. I was so angry about what Drew and James had gotten away with but they were not in my life now which meant I took it out on my parents by taking drugs and getting angry with them. If I got arrested I'd had someone to fight whilst I cried alone at the end of it all. The more I thought about it, the more I had in common with these women, which was why their stories really hit home, because they'd had such worse lives than mine, although at the same time our lives were very similar. When I'd started the house fire over Kay and the drugs, I was searching for release from all the pain I'd suffered through the years of abuse. The murders these women had committed were innocent lives, but the fact that all of them were searching for release meant that the small arguments which resulted in each murder could well have been mine. The only difference between my crime and theirs was that mine didn't any, end up killing anyone. But obviously it could have. I didn't put out the fire. It, it could have. So I felt relieved to know how lucky I was to still be free. However, at the same time, it made me feel gu guilty because these women would ne never get a second chance like I had. And for the first time, I truly wanted to change as I felt I needed to turn my life around out of respect for them, if anything else. It was sad saying goodbye in our last counselling session at the prison because I'd met some truly inspiring people who I, and I knew we'd never see each other again. I brought in a Christmas card for each one of them and they'd made one for each of us, all the girls on the course. And the card was filled from the whole, both pages inside and out were filled with messages from them all. They'd all written like a little paragraph each. I've still got that card. <laughs> um, one of the messages said, Dear Nita, it was great meeting you and a privilege getting to know you. I hope one day you'll be able to see all the amazing things others see in you. And I wish you all the best for the future. Good luck. I'll never forget you. Love from Katie. And that was the one who'd, um, whose son had hung himself and she'd gone through all the abuse when he painted her room black. Um, well. hmm. I cried as we said our final goodbyes and walked out of the prison. I went home to my family and didn't touch drugs until after Christmas. That was at least a month, as I truly wanted to turn myself around before New Year. But that was when everything changed. After seeing the lives lived by the women inside prison, I honestly didn't want to end up like them. However, temptation got the better of me. And on Boxing Day that year, that's the day after Christmas for anyone who's not in the UK. <laughs> However, the temptation got the better of me. And on Boxing Day that year, I was back on Dee's estate with Dee, who introduced me to yet another new drug that I thought could take all the pain away. Next chapter, meth. <laughs> oh. After walking from Dee's house to an empty field behind some trees, she pulled out a small bag of yellowish-white crystal shards. She took a CD case from her bag and tipped some of the shards out before crushing them with a bank card and some paper. She then pointed to the powder she'd crushed and said, This is meth. It's not been around for long, but it's amazing and you have to try it. So this isn't crystal meth like it's in America. It's methadrone, M-E-P-H, which they disguised as a plant fertiliser. And it feels like a mix between cocaine and ecstasy and last for hours and costed about five pound a gram at the time which is about 10 pounds now is it like mcat mcat <laughs> and mm. it makes you think of cat piss that's why it's called mcat <laughs> is um, it cat plant as well isn't it yeah to get it from that. Cat, that's what's called cat cat piss yep you can get it in sex shops Used so apparently it was never yeah. actually a plant fertilizer but that's what they marketed at it mm -hmm. when it was illegal how they put we've got to sell it as something legal mm -hmm. 
but people were buying it and using it as plants that you could buy kilos of it for like 20 quid. <laughs> um, I, I'd started about, so I'd started that when it had already become illegal or was on the verge of becoming illegal. Um, I watched her face twitch as she snorted her first line, struggling not to gag as it tasted so foul. I snorted the line she'd racked up for me straight after and gagged it back to swallow as fast as I could as it tasted worse than anything I'd ever imagined. Like, even worse than speed, it's gross. <laughs> Within seconds, I started to feel a rush, which felt like a mix between cocaine and ecstasy. Dee then pulled out a second bag of meth, which she handed to me and said, Merry Christmas, Nita. I was amazed at how fast the rush kicked in, but also for how long it lasted. I knew it was wrong to accept the gift she'd given me, but as soon as the meth kicked in, I forgot all about wanting to change, as all I could think about was how great I felt. I felt an intense love for all those around me, as if I'd take a bullet for the stranger standing next to me. My eyes began to shake uncontrollably and I was unable to focus on anything other than being happy. And um, I think I did end up going home that night because it was Christmas. Didn't want to upset mum and, da- and dad. Um, but I also didn't want my sister to find out I'd done it. I think I had taken cocaine home at some times and my sister had seen me do it. And as when I was a kid with the, with the Ritalin and she goes, give me some while I'm telling mum. <laughs> As with the Ritalin when I was a kid, my twin said, give me some or I'm telling mum. That repeated itself when we were 15 and I had cocaine. And she's going, give me some or I'm telling mum. And <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'd done that. And I didn't want to get her on meth. But at the same time, I also used to offer it to friends that were struggling because it was like it made me feel happy and I wanted to make them feel happy too. Um, I just don't need to read all this. After walking around all evening high on meth, I said goodbye to Dee and the rest of our friends before heading home around 10pm. We'd finished Dee's bag of meth, but there was still over a gram left of mine, so I continued to rack up lines which I snorted alone throughout my walk home. I stayed in the shadows, using every bush or fenced off area as a hiding place to snort more. By the time I arrived home, I was completely out of it, but still I knew I could not be seen by anyone, so I snuck past Dad who was still awake downstairs as I ran straight up to my bedroom. I used to pretend to be drunk when I got home because I could get away with that, so I'd like deliberately stumble upstairs and then fuck off to bed. <laughs> um, but it's really hard to pretend to be drunk when you're high on uppers. Um, I opened my bedroom window, which was directly above my bed, before switching on a fan beside to open the window to let the cold air into my room. I was sweating heavily as my heart was beating faster than any drug had ever made me beat before, but that still did not deter me from racking up more in my bedroom as soon as I was certain everyone else in the house was asleep. I opened a CD case from my bedroom drawer and threw away the inside casing, leaving only a clear plastic case, which I would use to rack up on before snorting all my drug, before storing all my drug paraphernalia inside. I sat on the side of my bed and poured out some more, which I then crushed in a, into separate lines ready to snort. As I checked one last time to make sure everyone was asleep, I closed my eyes and held my breath to ensure I heard any sound that might indicate somebody was awake. All I heard was silence, so I lowered my face down to the CD case and began to snort. My nose hurt because I'd been snorting since my nose hurt because I'd been snorting since I'd been out with D hours ago, so I pushed the roll up ten pound note so far up my nose it would avoid the meth coming into contact with the rest of my nostril, which was burning. They used to just cut up your nose, it's horrible. Um I knew I had to gag it back and swallow it before I felt the rush, but doing so would but doing so would inevitably wake somebody up with the noise. So I'd go to my window, which was wide open. I thought if I just stuck my head outside of it, no sound I made would be heard inside the house. 
So I began to make my way towards the window and now I'm in the loft, so it's over a big high roof. I stood up on top of my bed and leant right out the window, holding onto the frame to stop me slipping to onto the roof tiles, which were wet and melted from ice. So it was cold outside, but I was still like sweating and boiling. Um, I closed my eyes and brought my hands up to my face in an upwards arrow shape, like like that, before placing them over my nose and block- snorting up as fast as as far as I could, gagging back before swallowing the fouling taste, fouling foulest tasting drug I'd ever swallowed. As with every line I'd snorted that night, I fought not to vomit and managed to swallow every bit of it. Um, every bit of it that didn't end up directly in my brain from my nose. I was too intoxicated by 3am to lie still in my bed, so I started pacing around my bedroom while I was listening to music with my headphones. That's pretty much all I used to do when I was high. This is We had internet, but it wasn't that big. There was no TVs and bedrooms, stuff like that. So um, I used to walk heel toe, heel toe in socks to be quiet. Um, I eventually went out of meth around 4am, which felt awful because I was hitting a come down but couldn't sleep. So I lay in bed crying until I was sober enough to sleep. The next day I went back out to the estate to meet Dee, who had brought me more meth. We ended up snorting meth every single day for two weeks, sharing one to four grams between the two of us each day. We hung out with a large group of friends who also started taking meth, and we'd all roam the streets at night, getting out of our minds, chipping in five or ten pounds each to buy as much as we could. If I couldn't sneak past mum and dad on the lie that I was staying at someone else's house, I'd simply take meth at home and snort it all night by myself in my bedroom. When I was allowed out, I would meet straight up with Dee, who'd take me to different dealers to see who could get the best deal from. So by this point, we had so many dealers off that, that you could really be picky and they'd have to compete with each other. So, I mean, it was great for us, we thought, and we'd be getting in their cars, like big, um, like what big adult men, just getting in their cars, like still um, 16 year old girl, I would have just turned 16 now um, because it's after Christmas, so. Yeah, a bit dodgy. I think, you know, when you go to that, that, shake someone's hand and you notice how fucking big the hand is compared to yours and think, like, I'll be fucked if they cook off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think I shook someone's hand once because it's like, just like a high five shake almost. And doing that crisscross like that, his hand went halfway up my arm. Like, that's how big this guy was. Hands like shovels. Yeah. Um, he was about six foot six, though, so maybe a bit taller. But yeah, I just used to put myself in dangerous places, didn't really care because I was on that. And by this point, mum and dad have noticed I was on something, but they couldn't prove it. So I'd still deny it. One evening, um, oh, if I tried to talk, I could barely get three words out before I suddenly forgot where I was and what I was doing. I would then repeat the process like a goldfish for as long as I was high, which left me with no sense of time since I was taking meth almost every day. So there was like one period where I literally lost about three months and just didn't remember any of it like three whole months like it was just gone because my memory I'd remember get to five seconds and then I'd forget what was just said so if I was saying a sentence or hearing a sentence by the time someone finished their sentence I'd completely forget what the beginning of it was so I just it's a really odd feeling to be that high (laughs) Um, one evening I was sitting at home in my bedroom waiting for everyone to go to sleep so I could start racking up meth I'd never usually snort before 11 p.m as that's when my family generally went to bed but for some reason I got cocky and began to rack up around 10pm. Mum had come upstairs to the bathroom, which was beside my bedroom, when she walked in on me sitting opposite a CD case with five lines of meth racked on top of it. I panicked, but I knew I had to stay calm, so I quickly quickly came up with a plan to prevent her from seeing the drugs. As the CD case was on top of a hard 
As the CD case was on top of a hardback book, I picked up another book the same size and placed it directly on top of the CD case, just slowly and calmly. So, um, so mum, sorry. So mum's come into the room and like the CD case is on top of like a stool. It was on a, my piano stool because I was still playing piano a bit. And she's come in and she's sat on the end of my bed and her face must have been like this far away from the fucking lines. And I was like, oh yeah, just started talking to her. How are you? How's your day been? Keeping eye contact so her eyes wouldn't move anywhere else as I'm picking up a book and just placed it on top of it flat so I could still get them after, but just placed them on top. It's quite an odd thing to do to just be talking to someone and then just randomly pick up a book and move it two feet. But she didn't notice. Nope. <laughs> so I wait till she was in the bath. And then, yeah. Um. Cracked on with your five lines. <laughs> yeah. Mum seemed slightly suspicious because my eyes were big with dilated pupils. But apart from that, I went unnoticed and she soon left my room to use the bathroom. As soon as my door was closed, I picked the book back up, scraped the meth back into the CD case and into the five lines, which I snorted one after the other before hiding the CD case under my bed. The sound of the bath running was enough to drown out the sound of my nose. The sound of the bath water was running was enough to drown out the sound of me snorting. But I struggled to keep quiet when my nose started bleeding. I rarely had nosebleeds up until this point as I'd constantly switched nostrils when I snorted meth, but this time I'd been high on it for three full days and nights, awake for that entire time too. This was my fourth night and my nose had become red and swollen due to the meth having burnt the skin off inside it. I was scared at first that I'd never induced this amount of blood before, so I lay down on my bed and let the blood drip onto the sheets until I stopped bleeding. I was so high that I could barely move as my heart was beating so fast, so I stayed in bed and pretended to be asleep like everyone else was. I was so high now, but no more meth could physically make me any higher, but I continued to snort any time I felt it wearing off. If my nose bled, I'd simply push the money note up further than where the blood had started, so I'd usually end up tasting my own blood when I gagged it all back. I couldn't close my eyes as the meth was stopping me from even blinking, so even my eyes soon became dry and red too. My face was ghostly pale and my eyes already had huge dark circles around them, but no matter how obvious it was that I'd taken drugs, I still refused to admit it. No matter... Uh, sorry. I still... No matter how obvious it was that I'd taken drugs, I still refused to admit it when my twin caught sight of me. Around 5am one morning, I'd woken her up, crying and talking to myself in the bathroom, which was right beside her bedroom. I'd been hallucinating beforehand, lying on my bed, which I thought was no longer inside my room. When you've been up for that long, anyone, regardless of whether you've been psychotic or not before, start hearing voices and seeing things. And it's really emotional and horrible. And I think when you're still a kid, it's just your brain's got that many more things going on. Can you remember what you were seeing? Yes, um, vaguely. So I'd been hallucinating before this, lying on my bed, which I thought was no longer inside my room. When I looked around the room, I thought I was outside with some of my old friends from my hometown, which I recognised. We were in a field which was part of a children's park we used to hang out at, along with friends I remembered from the old estate, the one that I'd got banned from. I'd run out of drugs by this point and could see my old friends as clearly as they were standing right next to me, when suddenly they took my remaining drugs off me and told me it was for my own good. One of them said, we're just looking out for you because you're our friend and we don't want you to take drugs. We've thrown them into the lake. There's not a lake there in real life, but I thought there was. And I could even see the sky, like in this hallucination, like I was physically there and I could feel my friends. I could, um, with that, I screamed, demanding they get my drugs back as they had no right to take them. My heart was beating fast with anger, causing me an adrenaline rush as though I thought I was about to fight. I hit one of my friends in the face, knocking them unconscious on the ground. I then reached down to see if they were okay 
and started to panic, thinking I'd murdered them because of how they were lying in their pool of their own blood. As I held their lifeless body in my arms, I closed my eyes and rocked my dead friend. Sorry. Rocked, rocked my dead friend. Then suddenly I felt a cold shiver rinse through my entire body as I felt the weight of my friend turn to dust. When I opened my eyes, I was no longer in the park. I began to realise I was kneeling on the floor of my bedroom, cradling a blanket that had been a dead body mere seconds ago. I opened my mouth to scream, but no sound came out. Probably just as well, I suppose, as it was well past 5am at this point, and I remembered I could not make a sound or I'd wake someone up. I was now petrified because I didn't know what was happening, and if, if now was a hallucination too... How could that not have been real? I felt the weight of my friend's dead body dying in my arms as I cried. I'd seen them face to face and heard their voices as they spoke to me like they were stood right next to me. My heart was beating so fast I thought I might have a heart attack if I didn't stop moving soon, but I had to run to the bathroom to check if I was really there when I looked in the mirror. I knew I probably wouldn't have a reflection if this wasn't real, but when I saw my face in the mirror I felt more scared than ever. My pulse rate was so fast to put down in words, but I knew I had to stop it somehow, so I lay down on the floor to ensure my heart was only beating at the slowest it could possibly be at to stay alive. So when my heart, I'd be basically having heart palpitations and all sorts from overdosing, I guess, I just lay completely still and just try and breathe as slow as I could to try and slow my heart rate down. Um, but obviously, whilst I'd been hallucinating in the scenario in the park and my friend dying, my sister had heard me from her bedroom talking to... She'd heard my side of the conversation, so she'd come in the bedroom looking. For, she'd come into the bathroom looking for me. It was then that it was then that my twin walked into the bathroom after waking up from all the noise I'd made whilst hallucinating. She looked down at my body, which was frozen still as I struggled to breathe. My nose was covered in dry blood, which also covered half my face. And she asked, "Nita, are you okay?" Her voice was quiet and croaky as she'd been woken up after being asleep all night, but she didn't seem angry with me just upset. I told her in a shaky voice from all the drugs, I'm, I'm fine, sorry I woke you up, like coming back to reality now. She knew I was not okay but she'd seen me in the state many times before so I think she just assumed I'd be fine if she went back to bed. I didn't expect her to help me as I knew seeing me in that state would have upset her but I felt extremely guilty as I listened to see if she cried when she went back to bed. She had school the next day so I didn't bother trying to keep her up but I wondered if my drug use was affecting her more than she let me know. So... I remember putting my, I did eventually sit up and put my hand on the wall like that mm. to hear and I could hear her crying and I just sit with my hand on the wall like the other side of her bedroom and I didn't know until after that she'd been sat on the other side with her hand like this on the wall too. Oh wow, twin instinct. Yeah. Um, when she entered the bathroom a second time, she told me to get up as it was now 7am and she was getting ready for school, which meant mum and dad would be waking up soon and using the bathroom. She helped me walk back to my bedroom after throwing up bile, feeling sick from all the meth I'd snorted over the past four days without eating a thing. I drank some water, which was a struggle because my throat was swollen from swallowing meth, but I knew I was dehydrated and had to force it down if I wanted to feel better. I'd barely been asleep for an hour when Dad walked into my room, demanding that I got up and either went to work or did chores around the house. So when I got quite addicted to the meth, I'd managed to get myself a job to pay for it because I didn't want to deal. I didn't want to cause this shit on anyone else. So... um. I'd got that illegal leaflotting job where we deliver leaflets. The business was legal, but the fact of me working there was illegal because I was supposed to be in school. But obviously it had been signed off, so I was working for 30 quid a day, but sometimes they wouldn't even pay us. So you just go back hoping they pay you. Um, 
I'd only been asleep for an hour when dad walked into my room demanding that I got up and either went to work or did chores around the house. I didn't want to go to work, but staying in the house around mum and dad would be even worse. So I told him I'd walk to work after having a shower. Dad didn't trust me to walk to work as it was over four miles away and he knew I'd be late. So he offered me a lift and told me to hurry up. When I got into the car, we barely spoke, but I could feel the tension between us. So he stared straight ahead and I didn't bother asking questions. We arrived at work and I waited until Dad had driven off before walking down an alleyway with no intentions other than finding somewhere to sleep. So I told Dad I had work that day, I didn't. I'd packed my bags with water, cigarettes and a blanket instead of my work things as I knew I would not need them. After walking for almost an hour through roads I was unfamiliar with, I made my way through an Id- I made my way through a wooded area before realising I was near Dee's estate. <laughs> There was a small bench hidden behind some houses that backed into the woods, so I checked to make sure no one was looking before taking my blanket out and proceeding to sleep. There were enough bushes and trees to hide me from public view, so I set an alarm on my phone for 3pm and slept until it woke me up. Any normal person would never have been able to fall asleep where I was, whereas, but I'd been awake for almost 100 hours now, so I was able to fall asleep almost instantly. Um, I think it was raining, and I was just laying within under a blanket in the rain outside and slept for a good few hours, I think, what? I would have slept at 8 or 9 a.m. till 3 in, in, in the woods. <laughs> when I woke up, I lit a cigarette before putting the blanket back in my bag and walking to Dee's house, which wasn't too far away from where I was. I had to take the back roads once I was out of the woods, as I knew my boss would be driving around this time of day, and I think I'd blagged it off work. <laughs> so I kept my hood up and looked straight ahead as I walked through the estate. When I arrived at Dee's house, I was greeted by her dad, who was sitting inside smoking weed while shouting to her, who was up while shouting to Dee, who was upstairs in her bedroom. She soon came down and asked if I was okay, as my face was extremely pale, but I told her I'd been up all night and asleep all day in the woods. She said I should have gone straight to hers, as I could have slept in her bed, but I know her parents would have known I'd been on drugs all night. Her mum made me something to eat, and after testing my blood sugar levels with her diabetes equipment, because my mum had diabetes, um, it gave me some sugar. Her, she was really freaked out about my blood sugar. It was in the ones. It was one point something, and I think the Glasgow coma scale is anything less than four, you should be in a coma. My mum's 1.9, I think normal seven to something, so really low. <laughs> As I was coming down heavily from all the meth I'd taking, Dee was not surprised when I started crying in her bedroom. She hugged me and told me everything would be okay, but that we needed to cut down on the meth. I knew this was the sole reason for my whole world slowly falling apart around me, but the thought of going without it scared me beyond belief. I knew I had to do something about it, but I wasn't ready to quit. Dee felt the same way I did as it was messing up her life as well by this point. So I think like we agreed to quit together and that it would just be for a while. So then it would be okay. Like I think anytime I try to quit anything, if I tell myself that's it, no more for life, it's really hard and I'd crave it constantly. Whereas if I just say no, it's only for a few weeks, then you can have it. We soon agreed we would lay off the meth for a while, which meant we could still take it once again when we'd been sober long enough. This confront. This comforted both of us because we knew that although it was going to be tough quitting the drugs, we knew it wasn't forever and that we were just laying off it for a while. This stopped me panicking so much about when I'd do it again and what about what I'd do without it because it wouldn't be long till we could do it again. I just had to wait a few weeks. After spending the rest of the day with her, I made my way home. Um, hadn't used, I think... Oh, I hadn't taken any drugs apart from alcohol and weed as they'd helped me to cope with the come down. But mum and dad... But mum and dad saw nothing except a drugged up waste of space when I walked in. So mum started shouting first, asking where I'd been all day. She'd made a trip to work to ask if I'd been there. And they said I haven't turned up and I've obviously been out all day, all night. 
Um, Dad was also shouting at me, telling me I looked a complete state and I'd clearly taken drugs. And this is when I'd been sober for a day. So I found out throughout my whole life, even now, if I've ever used, I get only get complimented. Wow, you look amazing. You look so good. And then it's only when I'm not using and not just on a come down, but when I've not been using for a considerable amount of time, everyone says I look like shit and it's asked if I'm on drugs. Um, so mum started shouting first, asking where I'd been all day as she'd been to work to see if I was there. Dad was also shouting at me, telling me I looked a complete state and had clearly taken drugs. I started crying as I knew what to expect since the arguments happened so often, except this time I was trying to quit drugs. So I, ex- I felt really offended when both of them accused me of taking drugs that day. I got all defensive, like, I'm not even on drugs, fuck off. I told them to leave me alone as I ran past the stairs. I told them to leave me alone as I ran up to my bedroom, but they followed me up and I was finding it increasingly difficult not to react aggressively. Before I made it to my bedroom, I managed, before they made it to my bedroom, I managed to um, keep my door shut for long enough to check a small box, which I kept hidden under my bed containing all my drug paraphernalia. There were also empty drug bags and a few lighters in that box, one of which belonged to my nan, who was dying of cancer. I kissed the lighter, then put it back into the box, which I placed back under my bed before standing up and bracing myself for the argument that was about to take place. Mum and dad have come to my room at this point. Obviously, dad's really stressed because his mum's dying. It's awful. Um, And I'm putting them through all this shit. And they've only just found out about the rape. But it's like, well, we know about it now. So why are you still acting up? And it's not really that easy. Um, Dad stepped towards me as he screamed in my face. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you need to stop this shit right now. I've had enough of everything with you. I was angry and upset when I shouted back whilst packing my things in front of him, and mum sat on her bed and cried. She looked up at me and said, you're only starting an argument so that you can go out and get drugs, aren't you? Why don't you just stop it? Like, this time I hadn't started this argument, I was trying to quit. Um, I pushed past both of them and ran down the stairs before standing outside the front of the house and lighting a cigarette. Dad followed me out and called me over to him, saying he wanted to speak to me. I thought maybe he'd be apologising, like... (laughs) telling me that I didn't have to go as we could work things out. However, when he grabbed hold of the hoodie, I was wrapped. However, when he grabbed hold of the hoodie wrapped around my neck, I knew he was not apologising. He just grabbed me at the scruff of my neck. It's like, well, not physical, physical, but grabbed me like here. Um, Massive trigger warning to what I'm about to say, just for about a minute. (laughs) He pointed inside through the front window with his other hand as he looked me in the eye and said, your mum's dying in there and that's your fault. Your sister's up there slitting her wrist again and that's your fault. He then looked at me with tears in his eyes as he whispered with pure hatred in his voice. I'm going to slash my throat tonight and that's all your fucking fault. Don't you see what you've done to this family? Fuck off and take your drugs because you love them more than us. I cried as he let go of my hoodie and walked back inside. My tears suddenly turned to anger as I ran down the street, smashing every single fence and car that I saw on my way. No one dared to stop me and someone called the police, but I barely even noticed because of the pain I felt inside. I knew I could not go home, but I didn't want to be with Dee or anyone on the estate either because I knew I'd end up taking drugs. I was still trying to stay clean. Instead, I decided to walk around until I found somewhere to calm down and sleep. I'd been walking on the main road for around 20 minutes when I came across a motorway bridge, which I decided to sit under as I would be able to throw myself in front of a truck if I saw one drive past. (laughs) I reached into my pocket to pull out a 50 gram pouch of tobacco, but I couldn't smoke any of it because I'd lost my papers, which I needed to roll with. So I walked back the way I came, looking for my papers, and no sign of them. So I ended up walking about three miles to this big shop, big supermarket, 
tried to go and get served, they wouldn't serve me. So I was still outside trying to ask people to go in and no one would, no one would help me. Um, eventually approached this man. Um, he looked quite young. So reluctantly walked outside and approached strangers asking them to go in for me. I was beginning to lose all hope after asking more than five people who all refused. But one man took an interest in me and asked what I needed. He was tall and slender, 25 years old at most, and spoke with a strong Australian accent. I had asked people politely if they'd go into the shop for me, but no one had wanted to help me so far, so I decided to tell him just how much I needed the tobacco papers. I looked up at him, he was slightly taller than me, and said, Excuse me, sir, can I ask a favour, please? It will only take a minute. He stopped walking and asked me what was wrong. So I told him, I've nowhere to go tonight. I have tobacco to get me through the night, as it's the only way I can stay warm, but I can't smoke it because I don't have any papers and I'm not old enough to buy any. Would you please go in the shop for me and you can keep the change? I reached into my pocket and pulled out a two-pound coin, but he refused to take it from me. He seemed shocked about my situation as he asked if there was anywhere I could sleep that night or anyone I could go to, but I told him there was no one. He politely said, keep your money, I'll go in the shop for you. I don't smoke, so you'll have to tell me where to go and what to buy. I thought sweet. <laughs> I explained to him like how to go and get them from the cigarette counter, so he went in for me. Um handed it to me outside the shop. I thanked him before walking away, grateful for this stranger who had acted so kindly towards me. It was 1am by this point and I had nowhere to go. Sat outside the shop against a brick wall underneath a glass roof that provided shelter from the rain, like a bike shed shelter. After smoking a cigarette, I rubbed my hands together and breathed down my into my hoodie to try and keep warm. It was below freezing temperatures now and as the night had set in, I chain smoked to try and deal with the cold. I was now sitting behind the supermarket as I'd left the front entrance because I didn't feel safe out in the open but my quiet spot was soon discovered by staff who had walked out to smoke. A small lady in her late 50s approached me and asked if I was okay before sitting next to me and offering a cigarette. I told her I'd had a fight with my parents and I had nowhere to go. When she asked, would you like a drink? I can get you a cup of tea if you want. Um, I cried at the thought of a hot cup of tea because it was so cold, raining, been awake for four days and just had that sleep in the park that morning. Um, she soon brought me out a cup of tea, so I thanked her before heading out for a walk to warm up. She comes out with a cup of tea and a sandwich, and it was just really sweet. Um, I think it was going out that day, so just the food they'd all chucked out. It was like a really big supermarket. My legs ached. Um, she's sorry. So she brought out the cup of tea, and I thanked her before heading out to walk around to warm up. I could barely breathe by this point because it was so cold. My legs ached, and I was desperate to sleep, but I knew if I sat still any longer, I would probably go into hypothermia. It's 4 a.m. by this point, and I'm 16 or 15. Must be 16. I walked to the skate park nearby and saw a teenager walking out from an alleyway trying to light a cigarette with a broken lighter. I approached him and asked if he wanted to borrow mine and we started talking. He asked me what I was doing out so late and when I told him I was sleeping rough, he asked if I wanted to go back to his friend's house with him. Um, he had been taking meth with his friends before going out to buy some cigarettes, but his friends were also high so probably wouldn't mind if I went back with him because obviously meth made you like really love everybody. And he seemed fucked and young and at my age, maybe only a little bit older. And he spoke to his friends on the phone and they were girls. So I was, he was like, asked if I could come back. So I felt all right. I didn't have anywhere else to go. I was like, fuck it, it'll probably be free drugs as well. But I knew from experience that the reason he was acting so kind was because of the meth. But that also meant he was genuine when he said he wanted to help me. I didn't want to get back into drugs that I'd barely been clean for a day, but the thought of being warm and... The thought of being warm from the drugs appealed to me and I had no choice in the circumstances I was in or felt I had none. It wasn't too far to walk and he, his house was on near the estate, near Dee's estate. So 
He placed his arm around my shoulder as he introduced me to all his friends and he held the other arm out towards his friends who were sitting in a circle in the living room snorting meth around a table. <laughs> hey guys, this is Nita. I met her at the skate park and she's got nowhere to stay tonight so she's hanging out with us. <laughs> his friends who were also high took a shine to me right away and all came around to hug me so you'd hug everybody like that. Um, and then they offered me a line of meth which sounds strange to outsiders how strangers can be so accepting and welcoming to a homeless girl they've just met. But that's one of the side effects of the meth. <laughs> I placed a snort up each nostril before holding them whilst lowering my face down. So I used to snort one up each side at the same time. And that was my party trick. Like a massive one um, up each side. <laughs> um, so I did that. And I think a lot of... They cheered me on as they'd never seen anyone snort two lines up both nostrils at the same time before. So I immediately gained their respect. <laughs> as all of them were quite shocked and impressed. Um Although I felt guilty for taking the drugs after I said I'd quit, it seemed I had nothing left to lose because mum and dad hated me and thought I was taking drugs anyway. And their argument that night made me think, fuck it, as I had nothing left. I might as well do what was expected of me. So I ended up staying with them for a night. And I think I met Dee after. Um, around 8am I left and made my way up to Dee's estate, searching for a quiet place to sit until it was late enough in the morning to lock for Dee. I ended up waiting outside her back garden until I heard the door unlock, at which point I walked through the and um, knocked at the back door. Dee was asleep, but her dad invited me in before sharing a spliff with me and asking if I knew anything about her taking harder drugs. I hated lying to her parents because I respected them and they trusted me and they'd always been amazing to me, but I couldn't let our secret slip, so I told them I had no knowledge of her taking drugs other than cannabis. Dee eventually woke up but was grounded, which meant she wasn't allowed out and I wasn't allowed to stay very long. I told her what had happened and she pleaded with her parents to let me stay the night, but they wouldn't allow it as she was having her own problems. We'd both taken meth since we said we wouldn't, but neither of us would admit we had a problem. This caused arguments between Dee and her parents, just like it did with me and mine, but we snuck out together and refused to let it break our friendship. Sorry, we stuck together as we're just sneaking out together, refused to let it break our friendship, like we'd already been through so much. And despite the shit at court, that was like, to me at the time, that was the only thing she'd let me down on. And she would have been really scared. So I was playing off as that at the time. Um, I think early in the afternoon, I was told to leave, but Dee wasn't supposed to have any friends over or wasn't allowed out. So I thanked her parents and got out searching for a place to sleep. Um, by the time it got dark, I was already exhausted, but I knew I had to keep moving if I wanted to stay warm. So I smoked the last of my tobacco, which was almost finished. So I'd smoked 50 grams of baccy in less than two days. So I gave myself a chest infection from that, probably pneumonia, but I never went to hospital. Um, this caused me to develop a chest infection, which caused me to cough while suffering severe pain in my chest. But warmth, and sh warmth I couldn't go to hospital, like warmth and shelter were my main priorities. Um, I was quite good at shoplifting, so I would just nick enough food for the day. And um, whether it would be like a pack of biscuits and I'd have the whole thing and that would be all I'd eat that day. But it was like enough calories to not be that hungry. Um, I'm not going to say my methods because I don't want to encourage <laughs> people to break the law. But yeah, I never had a problem with that. I, they'd all call me Magnet as a kid because like, <laughs> um, <laughs> they're like, no way did you nick from that shop. They would literally follow you around and I'd still manage to nick even if they were following me, I'd like lock eyes with them at the counter and be shoving shit up my sleeves. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> Magnet. <laughs> it had just gone 3am when I decided to get going after sitting down for a short rest. I kept my phone off and only switched it on to check the time, trying to save the battery for as long as I could. I was walking from 
I was walking back from the town centre to the McDonald's, which I knew was 24 hours a day. Um, and just suddenly, like out of nowhere, I felt really anxious. Um, it's about 4am by this point. Um, I suddenly felt anxious whilst walking down a large empty road. It was pitch black outside with not a sound except for my footsteps. When I heard a car driving in the distance. It sounded really far away, but I knew it was going fast because of how loud it was. And it was getting faster and faster, closer and closer. So I turned around to face, um, I turned around to check behind me. It was a car, it was going fast, swerving all over the place, probably drunk, but I just thought, okay, it's just a car. And I turned back around and carried on walking. I was approaching like a junction. It was a T-junction to cross where the car's on the main, on the T-shape. And I was about to cross the side. And as I'm approaching it, there was suddenly a huge gust of wind that blew the hat off my head. And the hand, it was a woolly hat, winter or cold, um, I think just after Christmas. And there hadn't been like a single gust of wind all night, but this gust of wind was enough to blow a woolly hat off my head. So just I'm about to cross the road. Um, there hadn't been a single gust of wind that night, but that particular one was strong enough to pull the hat directly off my head, which caused me to stop just as I was about to cross the road. As I crouched down to pick up my hat, the car that had been driving in the distance was now just feet behind me, swerving in all directions before screeching on its brakes and smashing into the metal railings at the side of the road opposite me. So opposite me, it was like metal, you know, the kind of meter high ones. Cars gone, I've gone down to pick up my hat, looked up and the car's gone smash into the railings. Um, so it was then I realised that if my hat hadn't blown off, the car would have hit me because I would have been exactly where that, almost exactly where that was and if the car hadn't hit me the shrapnel would have um because the metal railings like smashed and went outwards i didn't it was then i realized um i would have it was then i realized that if i my hat hadn't blown off the car would have hit me and i would have probably been killed i didn't want to go near it but i knew i had to help the driver because there was no one else around and i couldn't just leave him as i walked towards the car which now had smoke coming from the engine i approached the driver's side and asked are you all right mate can you hear me I didn't receive an answer, just a few faint moans, but no actual words. The driver then became fully unconscious, so I ran to the phone box opposite, calling for help, dialing 999. I told them a car had crashed and a man was lying unconscious in the driver's seat, covered in blood and possibly drunk. I then ran back over to the car, crying by this point, as I knew the man was dying. I placed my hand inside the car, trying to untie his seatbelt to release him from the wreckage before it caught fire, because... I knew that you're not supposed to move someone with a possible spinal injury, but the car was about to catch fire, so that was obviously more of a priority. I tried to get a response for him, asking if he knew where he was and what had happened. I kept trying to reassure him, telling him that there's a fire engine and an ambulance on the way, That no matter how, but no matter how much I spoke to him, he just didn't answer. Realising he was showing no signs of life, I tried to call for help, but all the surrounding neighbours were asleep. Stay with me, stay with me, you're going to be fine, I kept whispering, even though I know it wasn't fine as if maybe it would help keep him alive somehow. I didn't know what to do, as I was not first aid trained at the time, and was suffering sleep de deprivation, which blurred my senses. But I, knew not to, to, but I knew not to pull him out from the car as he could have suffered a spinal injury. It wasn't long before all three emergency services arrived with their sirens blaring, at which point I fled because I knew I'd be taken home if they caught me. I was in total shock at what had happened, but I looked up to the sky and whispered, thank you. I wasn't sure who I was thanking really, but I knew something out there blew that hat off my head to stop me crossing that road. If I hadn't stopped, I would have been dead, just like the driver of that car. I didn't know how I was supposed to feel because I'd been thankful for a life which I'd wanted to end so many times before that night. 
Maybe I did have a reason to be here. Maybe there was hope. I eventually went home late the next day after fainting at a bus stop due to lack of food and lack of sleep. I didn't try arg- I didn't like arguing with my parents and I just wished that all of it would stop, but I didn't know how to end it. I called mum with the tiny bit of battery my phone had left after a stranger who found me unconscious at a bus stop demanded I call my parents or someone I trusted to pick me up else he'd call the police. I felt extremely awkward and uncomfortable getting into the car when mum arrived, but I knew I had to make up with her and dad before I lost them forever. I was crying when she picked me up and was up and she was upset too because last night had been the first year anniversary of the death of her online friend who'd passed away age 17 due to cystic fibrosis a year prior, just exactly on that night that my hat blew off. Um, he lived out in New Zealand and mum had planned for us to go over there and visit him one day, but he died before we ever got the chance. It was then I realised that he must have saved me from the car that night as he was the only angel who could have been in the sky watching over me. I told mum what happened and though it sounded insane, she believed my story and said it must have been him who saved me. I was still angry at mum and dad for letting our argument result in me sleeping rough for two days, but I was more upset by the fact that mum thought I'd deliberately started the argument so that I could go out and take drugs all night. I was in a lot of pain from my chest infection and asked mum if I could take some strong painkillers, so as soon as we were home she gave me some tramadol. I apologised to both mum and dad but there was still lots of tension between us so I stayed in my room and hardly spoke to anyone at all. My sister and brothers had all been home whilst I'd been gone. Like any time, I argued with mum or dad, they'd heard the whole thing and had locked themselves in their bedrooms as they tried to ignore what was going on. When I was home they didn't know how to act around me as the drugs made my behaviour unpredictable so all of my siblings just stayed away from me most of the time. Um, I was speaking to my brother recently and he's 22 now I think or 21 and he still can't listen to the music he'd listen to to drown out the shouting of me and mum and dad. It was just this one playlist and he still can't listen to it now and he would have been 11 at the time. So um, my chest started to hurt again when the tramadol wore off so I continued to take more but mum refused to give me any more after I'd taken two full packets of 250 milligram pills. She told me to go to the doctors if my chest was really that bad, but I knew they wouldn't give me anything since I was beginning to enjoy the buzz. A few days later, I decided to search the top. A few days later, I decided to search D's estate for a tramadol, and surely enough, I found someone who was selling it. I bought two hundred pills for ten pounds. <laughs> God, the days. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I started popping them every day, and I started doing them all day. I'd go to work doing the leaflets. And I'd, um, as soon as work finished, I'd pop five or six in one go because the pills I'd bought were only five milligrams or 50s, so, or 50 milligrams. So I thought five of these is one of what the ones I was taking. So I'd take five, 10, 15, 20 pills. And the buzz felt like I was high from smoking weed, except I didn't feel hungry, which was a huge bonus for me as I hated taking drugs that made me fat. After almost a week of taking 10 to 12 tramadol a day, I was off work, so I thought I'd get high in my bedroom. I slept until late as the tramadol made me drowsy throughout the next day, but I still thought I'd be okay to take more as soon as I woke up. From 11am I started taking the tramadol, consuming over 30 pills in 3 hours. I thought that 5 of these pills was the same as taking one of the pills mum had given me the previous week because they were 5 times the strength. I started to feel weak and dizzy as soon as I blacked out and lay down on my bed. Oh sorry, I started to feel weak and dizzy so I soon blacked out and lay down on my bed in my room. My sister came into my room to check on me a few times, but I didn't answer or I just kind of like made a noise to say, yes, I'm okay. So she'd go. 
and um, my twin knew I'd been taking the tramadol, but I'd kind of tell her for safety reasons, but I'd always have a go at her because I thought she was a threat to my secret. And obviously she had to hide all that. She had to hold all that in and lie to mum and dad for me. And I feel awful for all that shit I'd put on her. I always took my anger out on her when I was high or coming down because I saw her as a threat to my secret. I hated the way drugs made me act out on her, but I acted without thinking when I'd taken meth. But I acted without thinking when I took meth, and which I'd taken with the tramadol days prior. And um, my twin always received the brunt of my violent outbursts. Whenever she left my room after I'd shouted at her, I always felt guilty and cried, but I knew my only options were to stay away from her to avoid hurting her. And I think that hurt her more than seeing me on drugs. I think me trying to avoid her. Dad came into my room around 3pm after arguing with mum about the state I was in. I heard him shout to her downstairs, Where is she? I'm not letting that druggy cunt sleep all day. I'm going to wake her up right now. (laughs) My dad wouldn't take no shit. Um, and with that he marched into my room switching my light on opening my both my blinds ripping the duvet off my bed and shouting at me to get up telling me I had to help mum with her dog walk um, she was looking after friends dogs at the time so she was taking them out in a van um, she shouted at me and agreed with dad that I could go on I would go on a dog walk with her I'm just gonna read that again because I nah. so mum agreed with me event mum agreed with dad eventually and shouted at me to go on the walk with her but like she was sort of good cop, he was bad cop. I struggled to get up because I was so high from the tramadol, which was causing my arms and legs to feel like jelly whilst my head felt like a dead weight. I reluctantly dragged myself up and out of bed before throwing on a tracksuit and making my way downstairs. Mum told me to hurry up that I was taking forever just walking down the stairs, but I physically couldn't walk any faster as the tramadol was putting my body to sleep. I think tramadol builds up in your system, so... If you overdose one day, it's probably not going to be that bad. But if you take, because I've taken it consistently every day for weeks now, that was probably messing me up a lot more. Mum and dad tried to make me stand up as they thought I was messing around to get out of dog walking. <laughs> and like swaying and ugh, like wobbling and my legs kept going. But I wasn't faking and thought I was just trying to get out of. <laughs> I don't remember what happened next, but my entire, but my entire family will remember it clearly as if it was yesterday as a day that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. I made my way to the van and sat in the passenger seat whilst I waited for mum to pull away from the driveway. Her phone was on the dashboard in front of me and she asked me to pass it to her, but my face was looking down toward the floor and I couldn't speak. I waved my arms around in front of me, like trying to grab the phone, but just getting up to about here and then my arms dropping and I couldn't, I was like, like I was having a stroke, I couldn't move my face or talk. I waved my arms around in front of me, trying to grab the phone Mum snapped at me, stop being stupid, Nita, Nita. I suddenly started fitting and mum ran inside the house to shout for help. She called dad whilst panicking at the sight of me, shouting help, help, someone call 999, Nita's having a seizure, so I don't remember any of this. I remember waking up and just before it happened, but this is sort of what they've told me. My youngest brother, who was 11 years old, called an ambulance whilst mum screamed and dad cried. As he carried my lifeless body into the house, our whole family gathered round whilst watching in horror as Dad laid me on the floor in the middle of the front room. My eyes were closed and my lips were blue as he tried to resuscitate me, but he couldn't bring me back, and it was only when the paramedics arrived with a defib that I was, they were able to bring me back. Um, but my dad was trained in CPR from work. I think he'd done an ambulance driver. He'd been an ambulance driver for a while, so he was doing CPR before the paramedics got there. Mum and Dad did CPR on me until the ambulance arrived. And they took over with a defib. What's um, that feel like? 
I remember waking up. Um, I don't remember much from that time of physically like dead to alive, but I had a cardiac arrest another time a couple of years later, at uh, 21 or 20. And I remember the difference. I remember what it felt like just to be coming around from the CPR and it was pain, pain, bang, bang, bang on your chest to just like floating in water. It was like floating and it was peaceful and I was free and I wasn't in any pain and I didn't have feel any emotions, just free. And there was just like a sky, but there was loads of moons. It wasn't like our planet and it was beautiful. And then like, it was like someone was pulling my leg down under the water and I heard the shouting coming from in the water, like at the sea, but peaceful on top, pink sky with nine moons. And then I heard the shouting coming down from the water, wake up, wake up, bang, bang, bang on my chest like calling my name waking up and then bang my chest started hurting and then bang 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 pulled under the water bang woke up and that's to them doing cpr and i slipped away two or three times doing that not wanting to go so that was crazy i think i've had a lot of people that have had near-death experiences say it was like water i think i was in the in-between so you reckon that's the in-between definitely wow um So dad was doing CPR on me. My eyes were closed. Sorry about that bit. It was only when the paramedics had a defib on me that I began showing signs of life. Minutes passed, but for my family, it must have felt like hours before I finally took a breath on my own as they did CPR and defib. I remember opening my eyes and looking up only to see my family gathered around me like I'd done something really bad. Dad was out of breath with tears streaming down his face and his hands tightly gripped behind his head, just like his hands crossed like this behind his head just pacing and his eyes were like bloodshot and he'd been crying and just shaking hyperventilating um but when i looked at his face that was the same face that i saw anytime he was pissed off with me so i thought i was in trouble he obviously was upset and scared but in my confused semi-conscious state i simply saw the look on his face as the exact same look i'd seen when we'd argued any time in the past This caused me to act completely selfishly, refusing to go in the ambulance and telling everyone I was going out to see my friends on the estate, (laughs) obviously to take more drugs. Um, I could barely walk, but the ambulance crew tied me down to the bed inside the ambulance, like, I was coherent enough to argue with them, but not enough to, like, make a run for it. So they've got me in the bed and made me lay down, and um, I remember walking with them to the car and kept, like, almost falling over. And for the ambulance, sorry, and all the neighbours were out by this point because mum's been screaming, help, help, fit, not breathing. And like where my tongue had gone, where my dad had carried me in, in like how you'd carry a child uh, or like a fetal position. My head's like back. Um, so my tongue had gone to the back of my throat and suffocated me where I was completely unconscious. So my lips were blue. Um, horrible for my family. Yeah. And um, I later found out that... Um, my twin had told them that I'd taken meth and tramadol. Um, so. Thank God she did. Yeah. I could barely walk as the ambulance crew lifted me onto the bed inside the ambulance before tying me down and asking my family if they knew for certain if I'd taken any drugs. My twin was closest to me as she was my twin, but was now faced with the awful dilemma of whether or not to tell everyone about my drug addiction. If she told them I'd taken meth, mum and dad would hurt more than anything as I was slowly killing them inside. But if she told them what I was sorry um um but obviously if she didn't tell them then I'd die 
And if she told mum that I'd taken out something else instead, then, um, like, obviously they could give me the wrong thing. Um, there was no way to cover for me, really, and she was really faced with that decision. Um, if she to- if she told them what I was really up to, I'd blame her for opening her mouth, which would cause even more resentment between us. However, if she didn't say anything, I could die and she'd feel guilty for not saving me when she had the chance. So she eventually told the paramedics, she's a meth addict, she hasn't taken it for a few days, but she's had more than 30 tramadol in the last few hours. My sister found the packets. Mum and Dad burst into tears. They were distraught to hear that I'd been taking so many drugs, but at the same time they must have felt slightly relieved to know that my secret was out and they could now try to help me. I didn't see any of this, however. All I saw was my sister grasping on me and my parents accusing me of being a drug addict. I was not ready to admit yet that I had a problem, so when I became sober enough to talk about it, I simply screamed in anger and denied there was a problem. I was sedated for hours after being taken to hospital, as they had to give me high doses of other drugs to reverse the effects which tramadol and meth had induced, and I kept kicking off, so they were using it as an excuse to inject me with loads of diazepam. Um, Like, I got the bum injections, you know, the proper naughty ones. No, you're fine. The paramedics thanked my sister for telling them what I'd taken as it was her honesty that saved my life because the doctors knew exactly what the problem was now and how to save me. But I didn't want to lie in a hospital bed and although I was asleep most of the time, whenever I woke up I'd throw a raging fit pulling the wires and drips out of my body before being restrained by four to six doctors and nurses and they'd wire them back up and put the needle back in. I attempted to pull the wires out away from my chest which was covered in stickers they used to monitor my heart as well as pulling out the second drip which had been reattached to my arm after I pulled the first one out. Mum stayed by my side the entire time and I think she forgave me because I was in such a confused state unable to think straight any time I woke up but it must have really hurt seeing me in the state I was in. When I came round properly I started to feel an intense cloud of guilt as I began to realise the full extent to which I'd hurt my family. Mum, Dad, all my brothers and sisters, including my older sister's husband and kids, all of them were worrying about losing me. The doctors had told my parents there was no guarantee I'd survive, as the drugs could still affect my organs for days after the overdose. That word also scared Mum and Dad beyond belief, because not only did it prove I'd taken drugs, but if I died there was no way of knowing if I'd done it on purpose or not. The way I was acting inside the hospital would indicate that I had tried to commit suicide, as I was trying whilst I was in there, like... Um, like pulling out the drip, holding it to my neck and shit, like, come on, fucking... But they they don't even go, oh, no, please don't. They just grab hold of you and security had to come and help hold me down. I think I was on tag at the time after the curfew on the estate and being kept in for five days, they put me on tag. So the tag was wired up to the hospital. So if I tried to leave anyway, it would have gone off. Um, But I think they were asking me, like they got a psychiatrist in, thank God, and it's the first time I'd ever spoke to one. And they asked, were you trying to commit suicide? And I was about to tell them, but then dad came and saw me just before and was like, you better tell them it was an accident, that you're just stupid and trying to get high or they'll lock you up forever. So I had to lie about the self-harm and lie about everything and say that I was fine, even though I really needed it. And obviously a hospital level overdose is a lot more chance of actually getting some help as a kid. Um, And anytime we tried to get help eventually after, like the social worker called my mum and said, look, I've got a girl here who's gouged her own eye out with a pair of scissors and they're saying she's not sick enough to be in hospital because of how short they are for funding. And it's like a 14-year-old girl that's gouged her own eye out. Um, Nasty. (laughs) And just awful lack of services. Um, Yeah. Um, Wow. 
I felt guilty for my behavior before, but I felt really guilty for my behavior towards my twin. Um, and if I'd understood that she'd actually saved my life, I would have thanked her like any decent person. However, I was so wrapped up in my selfish head from all the drugs that all I could think about was getting my next fix so that I didn't have to deal with everything going on around me. The doctors told me that if I took meth again, I'd probably die, but I couldn't cope with my depression, so that's exactly what I did as soon as I was discharged. When I arrived home after being in hospital for about three days, I went to my bedroom and reached under my bed for my black box full of drug paraphernalia. I'd also kept the rest of the tramadol in there, but to my horror, the box, but to my horror, the box was gone. I searched my entire bedroom, tipping everything upside down in search of the drug box, but I couldn't find it anywhere, at which point I realised my lights were gone too. It had to be mum and dad. Who else would have taken it? Then I remembered dad threatening me whilst we were arguing a few days before my seizure. You better take anything from your room that you want to keep because I'm throwing all your stuff away. I cried. I was so angry and upset because mum and dad had invaded my privacy by raiding my bedroom as well as stealing things which they had no right to take. This box had like grinders, lighters, drugs, bags, um, paraphernalia, everything. (laughs) And the lighters that my nan had given me and she was dying. I was furious at both of them for betraying my trust, so I shouted at Dad, where the fuck's my stuff? I want it back now, I'm leaving. (laughs) Um, He shouted back and told me I shouldn't have left it as he'd warned me what he was going to throw it all away, which implied he and Mum had already searched my room before, finding my box, which they already knew was there, but they'd put it back exactly as it was found. They wouldn't take anything, so they always sort of knew. But this time they'd taken it, and I think I argued with Dad, and then um, I think I said Nan gave me that lighter. And then... Um, I cried as I walked back upstairs trying not to think about it but anything but leaving but I think just before I left dad went and got the lighter out of the bin and he goes which one is it all the lighters that were in the box he chucked like he went and dug through bins to go and get it so he saved the lighter because dad because it was nan's um, which I thought was really sweet I've still got that lighter by the way have you? <laughs> um Dad eventually walked up to my bedroom with a handful of lighters he'd dug out of the bin, one of which was Nan's lighter. I thanked him but felt ever so guilty as I knew it upset him since he knew I was only treasuring the lighter because Nan was dying. I eventually snuck out and bought two grams of meth, but I didn't feel like taking it after everything had happened as I knew it would hurt Mum and Dad more than ever. Now that they knew I was taking it, I found it harder to deal with it. I, they found it harder to deal with me when I was high as they knew full well what I'd taken. At least when they didn't know, there was still that little bit of hope left that that there'd be some kind of explanation as to why I was acting strangely without it definitely being drugs I was becoming more and more distant from everyone in my family and once my older sister found out about the drugs she immediately banned me from all contact with my niece and nephew I was distraught and angry because she had no right to stop me seeing them as I never took meth around them before seeing them or after so if anything the ban would only make me use more as I didn't have a reason to stay sober anymore um I think even at the peak of any drug addiction I've had, I've always put it down for family responsibilities, family commitments, work commitments. I'd never take it around my family or kids. Like, I can hold on to drugs for a long time and think, well, I've got a wedding this weekend or I've got this this weekend, so I can't take it till after that day. And, um, like, even with the really, really hard drugs, I can do that. Um, So I felt like, yeah, there's. I think with addicts, there's a big thing of, oh, well, you're not coming to see us anymore then. And then once an addict has nobody else in their lives, they've got no reason to stay clean. Why would you? Like, <laughs> um, I'm going to skip a bit of this because I don't need to read all of it. But my twin would argue all the time now. Anytime I'd walk past her, she'd call me a skanky druggie and say it was all my fault. Mum and dad always argued. Because it was, honestly. 
um, because I was the only one taking drugs and it was ruining everything. I hated this at the time, but I, I hated her at the time, but also felt guilty for hating her because I loved her really and we'd always been best friends and it seemed the drugs were pulling us further and further apart. <laughs> She angered me when she'd say I was simply running away each time that dad kicked me out. So dad would kick me out and then tell everyone that I'd just ran away. So that would make everyone hate me. And that's like, you know, the time I'd said that I hated dad for a while. Like we've got an amazing relationship now. I love him to bits. And he was obviously just doing all this to try and stop me taking drugs. But so I don't want to shit on him. But um, the night he sort of held me and pointed inside the window at the house and said, like, your mum's dying in there and that's all your fault. He lied and made me believe that my mum was dying of a terminal illness induced by stress. That was all my fault. For a whole year, made me believe that she had a terminal illness. That, like, fake doctor's appointments and everything. Um, so now he'd kick me out and go, don't come back, you fuck off. You're not welcome here. But then tell everyone that I'd ran away and he's never said that. And, like, still to this day, I think we argue about it. Not me and him, like... Um, so I think yeah me and my twin would always argue every time I ran away because of that and she never believed that in the heat of the moment dad had in fact kicked me out she also upset me when she cried and told me to stop taking meth but she could barely even look at me now I was such a mess and she made me upset by making me feel guilty that it wasn't like her there's no reason to resent her for that you know one night I'd been snorting meth in my bedroom when I dropped the bag of meth because my hands were so shaky from being up for days on it. When my twin walked into my room and saw me attempting to pick up each crystal shard with a magnifying glass and a pair of tweezers, she laughed sarcastically with a disgusted expression on her face and she said, you honestly don't think you have a problem? <laughs> um, I screamed at her to fuck off and leave me alone before slamming my door shut behind her and kneeling back down to the floor to pick up the remaining shards that I dropped. Mum and Dad rarely spoke to me either because I'd become ever so secretive around them. But now that my secret was out, it was hard for them not to be angry with me. Anytime they looked at me, all they saw was what the drugs had done to me and I think they felt guilty somewhere behind it all, behind all the anger because they'd done their best as parents to look and look where I was now. I think they blamed each other for the sexual abuse, like why didn't we stop it, why didn't, you know. Especially with our older sister having that dream when we were kids, so... I do think there's a, I do believe in psychic abilities. We've got slight psychic abilities, especially on my mum's side. And there was one night, my older sister, me and my twin were about nine and my older sister would have been 18 or 19. And she told mum that she had a dream that me and my twin got raped and she was crying. It was really vivid, really real dream. And she told my mum and um, my mum's like, well, what do you do? You can't ask a 10 year old, hey, is, have you been raped? Would they, you wouldn't even think they'd know what it is. Um, so I think mum had obviously some guilt about not saying anything because it, it was like we had all these warnings because there were other instances like that. But it wasn't their fault, of course it wasn't. How would they know? Um, my hair was always greasy by this point because I slept rough a lot and barely had use of a shower. My lips had teeth marks cut into them from gurning at whilst on drugs all the time, which had also made my nostrils huge whilst my eyes were black due to no sleep. I looked completely different to the young girl who once lived behind my broken face. So it hurt my entire family to even look me in the eyes. Mum would walk into my work and plead with my bosses to pay her instead of me so that she could ration my money out to ensure I didn't spend it all on drugs. My bosses refused, however, and thought it meant I could still spend... 
My bosses refused, however, and though this meant I could still spend my money on drugs, I felt deeply upset to know how much it was hurting mum. They really were trying everything to help and to stop me, and most of my drug addict friends didn't have parents like that. Um, she would frequently ask me where my money was, and if I couldn't show her a huge wad of cash when I'd been paid, mum and dad would demand answers as to where it went, as they knew I was spending it all on meth. Dad also went ballistic any time I was paid as he knew it was going straight up my nose so I began spending it as soon as I was paid to make sure mum and dad couldn't take it from me first. I think once they found out I'd start acting erratically around them anyway like they picked me up in the car once and I'd been out for a few days. And um... um sorry that's that from me off. <laughs> um, I got in the car and mum, I think my sister was in the car mum and dad were in the car and mum bless her soul was trying to make the atmosphere not so hard you know trying to like you could literally cut it with a knife I know that the saying's cheesy but she just says something like um I think I got I was about to get in the car and I was oh have I got to pay petrol money like because dad would throw that in my face he's like no get in the fucking car now it's like fuck's sake got in <laughs> I thought this is like but I was so high I didn't give a shit and I was being such an arsehole mum goes oh um you okay everyone um I think me and dad had started arguing and then it went quiet. So then my mum just says like, oh, um, I watched such and such last night. It was lovely. And I went, I got fucked last night. It was fucking lovely. And then like <laughs> to my mum and dad and then everyone starts shouting over each other. Oh, fuck's sake, you have to fucking talk. Oh, every fucking time. And everyone's like arguing and um, <laughs> poor mum and dad. Um, I think my sister jumped out of the car while it was moving once because they arguing. Um, like at about 30 miles an hour and dad went to drag her back but obviously people on the street had seen it was a really busy high street um, and they'd just seen like a young girl 15, 16 year old girl jumping out of a moving car with a man chasing after her so he had to go back in the car because all these people were coming out <laughs> um, <laughs> Why did you jump out of the car? She's asleep oh, She's asleep? Why did she? I think um, he would have been having a go at her like with her depression, she'd just, I think, probably the self-harming and she'd be getting drunk all the time and getting arrested too. And once, like, my dad said to me, oh, let's go if your sister lived. She didn't talk to me for the whole ride. It was a two-hour, it was like an hour ride and she didn't say one word because she's depressed. But my dad didn't really understand that mental health really wasn't talked about at the time. Um, and I think she was like, he was giving her a lift to somewhere and she's like, no, I'm going out with my friend. I'm going now. Like had decided in the car whilst it was moving that she was going. And he's like, no, I'm not taking you. And she's like, I will get out the car. Let me out now or I'll jump out the car. And he didn't. So she jumped out of the fucking car. <laughs> out of moving car, like rolled and everything. It was really was about 30 miles an hour it was going on a busy high street <laughs> full of people at like three in the afternoon or something. Um, <laughs> so... um God. So at this point, we're back at mum and dad have come to my room. Right, where's your money? We know you've just been paid. I'd stopped hanging out with friends at this point because I no longer needed them to get hold of drugs f for me as I was always on a different level to them anyway because of the sheer amount I'd take. So my friends would always get maybe two grams between five or six of them and it would last them the whole night. At most, half a gram to a gram each of the really heavy users. But me, I was buying nine, 12 grams and making it last a week and then like I'd use it every single day at least a few grams a day and on the first night I'd get it I'd um 
Um, I'd use like three, four grams for just over the night, two days. Um, so stop hanging out with friends. Um, I remembered how back at Christmas, Dee and I would be high all day off a mere gram between us. Now it would take more than five grams to get me through each day and I was taking meth everywhere I went. I'd take it home when everyone was asleep, at work all day whilst I delivered leaflets and outside at night if I'd been arguing with mum and dad or simply gone out to see Dee. Mum and dad were running out of options and one particular argument caused a bigger fight than ever before. So, I'd had the seizure and I'd continued to stay out and take meth because I just couldn't quit it. I was in too much pain mentally to be able to stop yet. But I think I think I knew I had to stop, but I just hadn't got to that stage yet mentally. So I'd continue to argue with mum and dad and we'd argue. I'd storm out, stay out for a few days or a week. So this time I'd been on the meth on and off, but I'd finally had an argument that seemed different with mum and dad. And I think I'm just going to read a little bit of that. Go for it. Um... This is, we'd argued and I'd, I'd been staying out with just a section. I used to sleep at the graveyard because I talked to the angel statue, which sounds crazy, but I just, I felt like I'd felt so much death in my life that, and wanted to die so much that I felt more of a connection talking to dead people than alive. So I'd talk to the angel statue and um, I'd ended up, I think it's, the meth had killed me inside alongside all my friends who I only saw as a last resort if I had nowhere else to go. I felt more of a connection when I spoke to the dead than when I tried to connect with the living because the dead were at peace and all I saw from the lives around me were anger and pain. One night I'd been arguing with mum and dad, but this time it was different when they told me to fuck off and never come back, as I think they meant it. Mum cried as she said she didn't know what else to do and dad gave me an ultimatum. I could either quit drugs and abide by their rules or it was time to leave and make my own mistakes. I wasn't ready to quit drugs, nor had I even accepted my addiction yet, so I left home after a final argument with Dad. My twin didn't believe me when I went upstairs to pack my things. She shouted at me, You're not kicked out, you're just running away like you always do. I hate you, you're so selfish, you don't even care about what you've done to me because you're too busy taking meth to give a shit about anyone but yourself. But she changed her tone um, once we'd both cried in our separate rooms for a while. Um, she walked into my room and closed the door and said, Please don't go. Promise you'll come back home in a few days. I told her I'd go home after I finished the meth I had, but that I just needed to go for a few days. I just needed to get out of my system to just use one more time. So I think it's quite a common theme with a lot of people at the end of their using time in addiction. I couldn't deal with the guilt of being home, but dad honestly had kicked me out. So I hugged her and kissed her goodnight before walking out the front door. With nowhere else to go, I made my way to Dee's estate. Dee had been hiding away as she'd been trying to quit meth after the fights it had caused with her parents for a few weeks, but she'd left without saying goodbye and was refusing to speak to any of us. I knocked for her friend, who I didn't particularly like, but being inside her house was much better than roaming the streets all day and night. We talked about Dee, agreeing that it was good she was quitting meth, but unfair how she had abandoned us all. There had been times where I'd be laying off the meth for a while, but I'd still make an effort to meet up with my friends, even the ones that were using, and I sort of felt hurt by that. But I understood that that's what she needed to do to be clean. But I felt hurt because she was one of my closest friends and she'd simply blocked me out just because... I felt hurt because she blocked me out just like I was everyone else when I was her closest friend and we'd been through a lot together. But I was pleased to know that I wasn't the only person she was ignoring. 
Her friend's mum had already taken in a homeless girl before and it hadn't worked out, so she didn't let me stay the night. Um, and that friend only let me take meth in her house if I shared with her, so we were doing that whilst her mum was in the other room. Um, ended up out for a few weeks and usually I'd find a place to stay, but this one time I'd been physically sleeping rough for about three weeks and I'd sleep in the um, in the park because there was cameras there, so I felt safe and a security guard had come out and seen me sleeping in the park once and asked if I was okay and I asked could I charge my phone I went to follow him but he was like no you stay here I'll go and charge your phone so he's charged my phone in the flats and I got him to come and wake me up at 6am so he'd give me my phone back at 6am I'd sleep on the park bench till then and then he'd wake me up and I'd go to work and I'd work full-time mental (laughs) I always held down a full-time job no matter what drugs I was on and I'd sniff all day at work and then walk back to Deez Estate meet up with friends who drugged with them till they went in and then go and sleep in the park and repeat that all week so this time I'd physically been rough for like three weeks. Um, I'd go and shower at leisure centres, steal food from shops and yeah, just try and get by. Um, I think this last final night, I called Dee and she hadn't been answering, but this one time she answered and I explained to her that I'd physically been sleeping rough for three weeks and she was like, she changed the tune after finding out I'd physically been on the streets for three weeks. She's like, no, come around. I'll sort you out with clean clothes, food, have a shower, a bed. But that was until she found out I had five grams of meth on me. So um, we hung out that night um, doing drugs together. And yeah, she came out and did the meth with me. I told her she didn't have to, but she wanted to. And I was still with the friend who I was trying to stay at, who was friends with Dee. As we roamed the streets late into the evening, I started to feel strange when Dee led me into a dark alleyway before stopping suddenly. Her friend was with us at this point, and since I was too high on meth to even know who I was, a mere shove from a mere shove from Dee was enough to push me from. But since I was too high to even know who I was, a mere shove from Dee was enough to push me down to the ground. I was so high that I didn't even see what she was doing when she took the bag off my back and started running with it, leaving me lying on the pavement, barely conscious. She shouted as she ran off with her friend. We've got to go. We'll see you later. I was so high I didn't even know what she'd done until it was too late. Hours later I regained my senses as I was sobering up when I reached behind me to grab my bag to rack up, um, forgetting that Dee had taken it and run off with it. I immediately searched my pockets for meth, but that had been in my bag. It then became clear exactly why Dee had taken it, at which point I realised how utterly vicious she had been. As I let out a violent scream of rage in the pouring rain, I hit my head against a brick wall in anger before falling back down to the ground. I felt sick to my stomach, the exact way I'd felt when I'd read the papers in court and realised she'd got my hat behind my back and completely betrayed me that time. I felt so stupid, so hurt. How could she have done this to me? How could I be so stupid to let her do this twice? I tried to call her with the tiny bit of battery I had left on my phone, but she didn't answer. It was gone midnight now and I would have been stupid to go looking for her as she couldn't be anywhere around the estate high on drugs sorry it was gone midnight by now and I would have been stupid to go looking for her as she could be anywhere around this estate high on drugs I remember the text I sent to her as clear as if it was yesterday I've still got this old phone actually with these texts on it please Dee please tell me this isn't true I went on to say I trusted you you filthy backstabbing bitch I hope you choke on my fucking mouth I was getting nowhere and I knew my drugs were long gone, along with Dee, who had caused me more pain than I'd ever felt. On top of stealing my drugs, she'd also stolen every other item that I'd left home with that was in that bag, so like photos of my family, 
bit of clothes, food, a bit of money, all the personal items I had and the lighter that my nan had given me. Um, or I thought it was the lighter my nan had given me. Thank fuck it wasn't. It was another one. But it was still sentimental. I think it was a birthday one anyway. Um, I had nothing left and was truly ready to end it. So I made my way to the train station where I prepared to throw myself off the bridge and onto the tracks. Before I got there, I decided it would be best to call mum and dad, as although they'd be asleep, I could at least leave them a voice message to say goodbye and apologise one last time. <laughs> I thought I owed them at least that for everything they tried to be there for me. To my surprise, mum was awake and she picked up the phone. Hello, what do you want? I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> oh my God, I've never heard anything. I mean, we've heard a lot of stories. I've never heard anything quite like this before in my entire life have you jen no and the fact that it's gone on how long now this is part two and we're off two almost four hour installments eight hours hours so far and how old are you at this point 16 (laughs) still how old are you now 26 still a lot more to come 10 years there's a human i'll say transporting situation yes and also Nita's twin has been in the room today. She just wanted to observe what was going on. Let us know in the comments if you would like to see Nita's twin come on the camera and, you know, add to the story and and give her side of things and add more details as this progresses. And again, I'm just going to recap some of what I said the first time from part one. On this channel, we have been showing that one of the main root causes of crime is childhood trauma, especially abuse. And the whole legal system is completely upside down. These predators get slaps on the wrists. And look at what these predators have caused in not just Nita and her sister's lives, but the family's lives, the mayhem. You know, I I was so moved and and my, my heart was like, oh my God, when... When her, her dad just said, right, you've caused all this. I'm going to fucking slash my wrists tonight. It's all your fault. But it's not because if you go back to why she's behaving like this, it is that trauma, the demons get inserted into you from these bloody predators. You don't know how to deal with your demons. You, you're not in a position to psychoanalyze yourself at that young age. So the natural remedy is street drugs. So, so many young people have been traumatized by these predators. Get on the street drugs to finance that. It's criminality. And you've seen the escalating mayhem in Nita's life as she's gone down that exact same trajectory that so many of our podcast guests have gone down. The guys we've interviewed, you know, like Joey Barnett and other guys who experienced really traumatic childhoods ended up on crack and armed robberies and really violent crime and serving decades in prison and on and on and on and on and on it goes so this is not just a gore fest there have been some extremely harrowing things here but there's also very important lessons for society and i think you know we see these movies like gangster movies and all this kind of stuff we need to see movies more about the women about people like nita and how those things that happen early in childhood, how it affects them for the rest of their lives and everybody around them as well. Because look, cause look at the madness. So anyway, we're only uh, on part two. We've got part three and possibly part four coming. So please let us know possibly in the comments. part five. <laughs> <laughs> please let us know in the comments what you have thought so far. We're also in talks to republish Nita's book as well. And um, 
there's going to be a, you know there's a lot more details in there and like i said in the very beginning her youtube channel the link is in the description box below this video I've sat here just flabbergasted, hardly said a word now for eight, almost eight hours. But that's our ideal podcast guest where we just sit here, the story just goes, and um, it's it's so gripping. Time just goes like that, and Nita tells it so well. And considering everything she's been through to write a book, you know, when she was just a kid as well, so it just took her a year. The quality of the writing, you can see she's certainly got her head screwed on throughout all of this. She's got so much talent to offer to the world and with your love and support you know we're going to keep all this going so please reach out to Nita go over to her YouTube channel there's loads of videos on there about all of you know things she's been through in life and let her know what you think so yeah thank you again brilliant thank yeah. you so much for having me it's been great thank you for watching yeah Thanks yeah so cheers thank you oh wow well done again yeah it's brilliant so, yeah, yeah.